Hello, my fellow Astorians. Welcome back to another Sunday. Welcome back to another edition of Valar Reredus for the World of Ice and Fire, where we take small topics within this book and blow them up to very large topics by using them as a springboard, searching all the other sources and the real world for other things that we can include, other things we can imagine, other things we can base our contextual understanding of. And this is a particularly good spot for that because Valyria is ripe for exploring and understanding. It's so important to the story. It's so big that, in fact, we won't cover it entirely today, that we're, we're focused today on the rise of Valyria, the origins, early civilization, the look, their native territory, what it was like, and how that supported or worked against them, culture and government, their gods and worship and things like that. As well, the influence on A Song of Ice and Fire, which is very strong it's and, and perhaps prominent in ways you may not have realized, though I'm sure you noticed it was prominent. In, in, in any case, we've got a lot to talk about. What we probably won't talk about too much that we're saving for next time, we have a, a guest, Jamie Redfern of The History Of, to talk to us about some of these topics. And that's going to be like the expansion of Valyria, wars with old Gis, the slavery, uh, comparisons to Rome and old Gis compared to Carthage and things like that. The free cities, which of course were largely created slash influenced by Valyria and as well the doom. So that is a lot, as you can see. So that's why we can't do it all in one episode. But we will have a lot of fun with what we have. As always, we'll entertain and immerse and escape. And we'll do the best we can at that, as always. Sean, in honor of the freehold of Valyria, what kind of special beverage do you have? I, I, as always, folks out there, I remind you that I can't actually see Sean. So sometimes I'm like, well, Sean, do you have a a drink with the blood of Valyria or wildfire? Well, this, how could you possibly think that given the color of this? But <laughs> I guess that's probably one of those times, huh? It, it is. It is. It's not red or green, huh? No. No, yeah. It's like a yellow tan. Okay. Cream a color, maybe. It's like the hair uh, of a Valyrian person, maybe. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like unless any person. <laughs> it's not blood of the Valyrian, it's hair of the Valyrian. <laughs> hair of the coconuts. <laughs> hair of the coconuts. This is the uh, like hair of the dog, but the <laughs> this is the pina colada naked drink mixed with the coconut pineapple sparkling ice mixed with the coconut berry Red Bull flavor, which is a new one, or new to me at least. And also, of course, classic standard Mountain Dew. Of course. Of course. And it's super delicious. <laughs> Very nice. Very Are you going nice. to mix drinks for people at Ice and Fire Con, perhaps? Are you going to like stop at the grocery store? You should, you should get I, a ton of drinks and we should be you yeah. should set up an area where you mix drinks for people, non-alcoholic drinks. <laughs> Everyone's going to be expecting it to be alcoholic. But it won't though. be. I guess They'll just be like, we, we what is yeah, this? Be be like, <laughs> no, they're going to be like, whoa, what is this? I can't believe how good it is. That's what <laughs> I think we should do this for sure. Sean Soda. Uh, Soda. <laughs> if I can make a plug here, I also have some videos. Yeah, good I time did for my it. own channel, Dancing Sean, uh, where I do movie reviews. I also did the boys TV show. I might do some other TV shows. But anyway, so far, I've been doing like little one minute quick spoiler free reviews of movies just to give you an idea if it's something you might like. You know, I, I'm, even though people mm -hmm. have heard a few, some people have heard you say this before. I think a lot of people are probably surprised to hear you say that they're a minute long each. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a lot of effort to get it that short, by it the is. way. I had to do a yeah. hundred takes to, to 
not only not fumble anything, but to say exactly what I want to say and say it quick enough to get into one minute. It takes a while to condense down which information I want to piece across. But yeah. Anyway, I hope people out there appreciate them. I'd, I'd love to know if someone watches a movie because of my review or a movie you've already seen. If you see my review, if you think I sold it well or whatever, yeah. but represented it well. Uh, yeah, you can see the link to that anyway, in the, the chat. Dancing Sean, though, oh, is cool. also what it is on YouTube if you look it up. But we've, lo- we've watched uh, your older ones. We haven't watched this new batch yet. But yeah, I we did. enjoy them. And I agree. It is, it is hard to... yourself. What's that? I watched the new batch. You did? Oh, you already I, watched I love them. Wes All right, you're ahead of the game. I- I shouldn't have spoken for you. Yeah, you shouldn't have. (laughs) They were good. They were all Wes Anderson batches. Like the French Dispatch, Bottle Rocket, Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, it was was great. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. yeah. Also, I want to give a shout out to Nina. She's given notes as usual. Excellent notes that help us explore the topic that we're on today. Recent post on goodqueenalley1l.tumblr.com is a analysis of Catholic imagery in the Forsaken chapter of The Winds of Winter. And of course, that is a rich topic in A Song of Ice and Fire in general, but particularly in that chapter as well. Check that out, as well as her other writings. Now, Shay, you've got a little something you wanted to share today as well. Yeah, I do. I would really appreciate it if any of y'all would mind taking 10 minutes to take, Aziz took it for me and we timed him. It took him seven and a half minutes. And I have a survey for college. I'm in my final semester um, of getting my degree. I have to do a capstone paper. The subject is augmented reality lenses, um, like Snapchat lenses and filters that you use, or Instagram, all those that beautify your face or give you a silly effect or any number of things. Anyways, I would love it if you could take it. The URL is bit.ly slash AR lens, as in bit.ly slash AR lens, like Arlen. I'm going to put it in the description. Arlen, Texas. Yeah, like Arlen, Texas. But (laughs) I'll put it in the description and I'll be tweeting it around and stuff. I'll be... I'll be collecting responses for at least a couple of weeks, I think. So you have a little bit of time. But yeah, it's completely anonymous and I'd love to get your responses. Thanks. Right on. Yes, check that out. If you've got a few minutes to spare, Shay, I would appreciate it. Good. Yeah, Sean? I should throw in one more thing here, yeah. by the okay. way. Uh, I'm going to be on Stephen oh, Stark's... Oh, yeah! Oh, of course. course! I know that nerd. Next week, right, immediately following our stream next week. Well, maybe, depend how long we yeah, go. You know. <laughs> Nearly immediately following our stream next week. get you a break. Be, uh, yeah, I'll give you a double feature with Sean. Yeah, yeah back-to-back. That's pretty cool. The Here Be Dragons yeah, It's really yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. The, the I know that nerd. Aziz and I have both done it. And yeah, you get to talk a lot about yourself and your passion so it's just, it's really really fun i'll be tuning in to listen to yeah, sean talk that's cool yeah cool. unfortunately we were i've been sort of delaying introducing our guest because he's had to step away literally as we were launching the live stream like, like Ashea was playing yeah. the music and he had to walk mm-hmm. away for a family emergency my there bad sorry sorry <laughs> well good timing though so what have you been up to lately over on the joe magician channel let's start with that my YouTube channel. It's, I can't remember blur. what I did. Well, you did some it's dying of the light stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I've got that coming up. Chapter 13. I'm going to be recording that tonight, actually, because I've been watching your guys' streams on uh, World of Ice and Fire. It's sort of lit different ideas in my head for content I want to do. So my last few streams have been about the origin of the others, the creation of the White Walkers. Is there actually a relore? Nice. And then House Blackwood tying back into that. There'll be another House Blackwood episode coming out. How, how dare you question Relore? <laughs> there is no Relore. We'll I see. feel you on taking two episodes to cover House Blackwood. It, it took us two as well. <laughs> I, 
I swear to God, I was like, I can cover this all in one stream, and then I barely got to Aegon's conquest. <laughs> like, like, nah. I just like, I, just, I gotta keep yeah, going. There's a lot of content. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. George really loves the Blackwoods in a way people underestimate. But yeah, that's that's why I got going on my YouTube channel. So I'm working on other videos, but I've had to scrap them a few times. But don't worry, they're coming. Right. It'll be interesting and they'll be different. All right. Oh, different. You got some changes coming maybe or... I got some I got some different ways of approaching things based on other YouTube channels I, I'm fans oh, of. Oh, very good, very good. Oh, I cool. like uh, the evolution of Joe Magician sounds exciting. We'll have to yeah. uh, we'll have to pay stay tuned and see what that's going to be. Let us have our weekly trivia question for the Val Arboretus Worlds of Ice and Fire. I've started that last week and we'll see how it goes. Hand to the King Thaddeus Rowan was imprisoned and tortured into making a false confession. The truth began to come out when he confessed to other crimes he could not have possibly committed. Mushroom claims that he even confessed to being responsible for what famous event? What famous event did Thaddeus Rowan, Hand of the King, confess to that he could not have possibly been responsible for? Answer at the end. All right, let's get into the info Essos is a diverse, huge place, and it has been impacting the peoples of Westeros for eons. There's a pretty strong argument to be made that the Valyrians registered the greatest percentage of that total impact from outside. I don't know how you would define impact, so it depends on that. But the Children and the Giants would certainly say the first men had more impact. They're the ones who wiped them out. But, and you might say the Andals did more direct harm to them. Maybe. But speaking of them, yeah, one could fairly say the Andal influence has been far greater directly. But it was the Valyrians who pushed the Andals to migrate towards Westeros. So they get at least partial, well, I don't want to use the word credit, but they were involved. And it was the Valyrians who founded most of the nine free cities, including the ones that Westeros does the most business with. They may have founded Pentos. It's unclear. That's, that's argued over. Tyrosh, they definitely founded. Some of the others they just sort of absconded with and made larger, while others they brought along. And of course, Bravos is a bit of an exception. That's another one you don't give them credit for. But all the same, Bravos probably wouldn't exist without Valyrius. Rhaenar as well. They, of course, came along probably before the Valyrians, and they came to Westeros long after the Andals. But they went a lot of other places, and it was their conflict with, with Valyria that led to all that. And so that's another one like Bravos, where you don't give Valyria credit, but their influence is undeniable. And of course, we haven't even mentioned House Targaryen conquering Westeros yet. So they were immensely powerful for a hugely long time, and even after the absolute annihilation of their portion of the continent and the passage of some 400 years, that influence remains really strong. Their bloodlines are everywhere. Valantis, Lys, Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> There's still Valyrian steel to be found. There's Valyrian scrolls at the Citadel. There are designs and architecture like Dragonstone, the Dragon Pit, heck, the Iron Throne. And of course, Danny's real actual dragons and whatever is yet to come. So let's start off. Joe, a magician with a take from you, what's your sort of overall view of Valyria and its role in the story? Like not getting into the details of who they are in their history, but just like the way they influence A Song of Ice and Fire. It's one of those weird things where it's such a massive influence on basically everything we're seeing, but it's really set in the background. And he does that quite a lot where he loves having sort of the story behind the story, just sort of a bunch of dots you can, can connect behind what you're seeing. So much of what we're seeing from, like you were saying, magical artifacts to dragons to Danny's legacy and all these things, they all go back to this civilization that we'll literally never see. Yeah. <laughs> It'll never show up on the page. This is as far as it goes. And I think that's pretty common of George. It's just, it's we, We're going to talk about this a lot more, but it really mirrors like the children of the forest and the way that they have shaped the first men in Westeros itself. It's almost like you can see them as and the others in the lands of always winter. 
There's the regular people going about their lives and there's this massive backdrop they can't even begin to comprehend because even if they were still alive, they still wouldn't understand them because they're magic. Yeah, so. that's so true. So that's very well said, yeah. And it's, it's a good way to introduce our first subtopic here, which is, as we like to do, refer to the first time it's ever mentioned. And that's particularly telling in this case because of how much is introduced all at once and the way it's framed. This idea that there's this, the Valerians and their mystique, their history, their mythology or whatever, it's like a, it's like part of their culture. It's part of the, it has become part of the world's culture. It's like a reference point. Mm. Even if you're not Christian, you still know who Jesus is, like the story of Noah or whatever. They're like these like pieces of our collective conscience. You know what I mean? Of how we like understand or talk about the world. And you can see that constantly in the people of Westeros. They constantly think of, Valyria, characters from Valyria, even if they're not actively thinking about the influence the Targaryens have had or how it was because of the Valyrians that Bravos was founded, they still reference Valyria in the way we might reference, I don't know, Zeus or King Arthur or something else. Point. You know? Yeah, it's just really, really, it's just so overwhelmingly part of all the discourse and part of all everyone's It's like, yeah, E.T. might also be incredibly ancient, but they're not really referencing that culture. It's true. Yeah, they're so but, far yeah. east and, and yeah. haven't migrated to Westeros and didn't conquer. Yeah, it's just, you're right. Like, they may be just as grand and magical, but their influence on Westeros is, is far smaller. And in a, a similar way, in our, we're all from North America, so we, uh, we live basically in the shadow of Charlemagne and Augustus Caesar mm -hmm. and Alexander the Great, even mm -hmm. though we still reference them all the time. True. They're not really a part of the public consciousness consciousness in that way, though. Like you still see people all over the world calling themselves czars and named after the Caesars and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And constantly, even when That's we're true. talking about the history of America, they're writing so much about the Greeks and Alexander and how they related to them. It's the same kind of thing. It's a context for our culture, unfortunately. Right on, yeah. Depending yeah, on unfortunately, which yeah. ones you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's amazing because you're right. Like you, you say, there's a, a bit of a negative slant to that because some of these figures are really not good people. But yeah. they remain a big part of our history. And it's like, yeah, we're not, no one's trying to emulate Alexander the Great. I mean, maybe, well, maybe a few of it. Well, well not no, not no are. one. You're right. Not no one. I mean, like everyday folk aren't trying to live. We're not like taking life advice from him. Surely there's a few world leaders that are. You're, you're right to say that. <laughs> but um, people aren't like, gosh, let me live like Julius Caesar did. I want to do. People say stuff like that, but they don't do it. But like there, there are people who are like, yeah, let's yeah classical time. Like, like a Caesar. But you don't have like but, Julius but Caesar tattoos. Or like who is an Alexander? <laughs> <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg and you get his hair yeah. <laughs> Let's start off with the quote. This is a really awesome oh. quote. It's the first ever mention of Valyria. And just look how chock full this quote is of just juiciness. She could see the rippling deep within the steel where the metal had been folded back on itself a hundred times in the forging. Catelyn had no love for swords, but she could not deny that ice had its own beauty. It had been forged in Valyria before the doom had come to the old freehold, where the ironsmiths had worked their metal with spells as well as hammers. Four hundred years old it was, and as sharp as the day it was forged. So that's Catelyn 1, which is really important to remember where that chapter falls in. It goes prologue, 
Bran won, Catelyn won. So this is really early. This is the third chapter. First thing she's done is gazed on the heart tree and been creeped out by the heart tree. And then she's, she's seeing Ned, so that, that part's comforting to her. And then she's thinking about the sword in Valyria. So you just have this like ice, fire, some of the biggest stuff just coming right at you right away. And it the significance of it on first read probably isn't that clear, but you have the opportunity on rereads, as we well know, it's designed to be reread, to really check in on this moment and, be, and understand Catelyn's awe and wonder and realize how important this is from the beginning. Joe Magician, I see some good notes from you here. What do you think about this? I think the thing that jumps out first is the name, the Valyrian Freehold, the old Freehold. (laughs) Obviously, George is writing this in the context of all the things that he's read in his life. And one of the most formative ones is obviously Lord of the Rings. When you hear about ancient magical smiths that lived in a place called the Valyrian Freehold, your first thought is the elven Smiths, because that's obviously one of their mo- one of their biggest influences in Lord of the Rings as the book series is that basically every cool thing you see is made by the elves <laughs> from sword, daggers, all this, uh, even the rings of power. Other, I mean, like Sauron gave them the things, but they made their own rings of power. Right. That's sort of the idea that George is trying to get you to think about when he's talking about the Valyrian Freehold. It's oh, are these like the elves from Lord of the Rings, but then it's twisted in a funny way. And we're definitely getting into this later, but the name Freehold <laughs> almost seems like a yes. joke by George <laughs> about the Valyrians because you hear the name Freehold and you think it's, oh, well, maybe there's some kind of free, open, egalitarian society. And it can contrast this against the kingdoms and feudalism that we've seen so far in the books. And it's actually, it's a thousand times yeah. worse in the <laughs> opposite. And it's all the irony of someone like Thomas Jefferson writing, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. While he owns slaves, he's owned human property. It's the same kind of thing. I think it's a joke a little bit on America itself, but I totally agree. (laughs) Great for its citizens. But like a lot of societies, the way they define who is free and who are citizens and who are even humans depend a lot on the context of their society. It's the same thing for the freehold here. It's a funny little joke looking back on it that this is the introduction when you later learn what they're actually like. I think maybe it was Sean, did you make this point or someone else did possibly in past weeks? The point being, like, North Korea calls itself democratic, for example. Yeah, like these, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, technically, there is a, a microcosm of democracy in that the, like, really powerful people vote on things. But it's like a, a group of people in one room, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> at, at best, right? It's like, that's... that's not yeah, really a lot like of democracy. countries will call themselves democratic, but they there's only one candidate. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a lot of ways to... Subvert uh, it. That yeah. said, I, I, I can't help but what's the word apologist is the right word I'm using, but it still might be improvement, at least to have the concept of voting. Even if you only let certain people vote, I still think it might be better to let a, a seed. A, an elite group yeah. of people vote than no one vote, sure. right? Like rather to have a bunch of wealthy people who own land and are men or whatever vote than just one dude who was born with a certain name being, so I still think it's an improvement. Mm-hmm. You look at historically, a lot of times the vote expands over time, right? Like in America, if we use America's example, yeah. like it was, it was better to have 
only men voting than no one voting. But obviously, it's better to have women voting. That was a huge expansion of voting. But we may not have ever gotten that far if it wasn't like gradually expanded. You've already said that. And I can clip you saying that now and use it for anything. Canceled. It's easy canceled. It was better to have only men voting. You're out of here, buddy. Gotta watch how you get clipped online these days. Yeah, even out of context. Gotta turn off that feature, you guys. Gotta turn off the ability to make shorts from stuff. I think you're right, Sean, in the sense that they are, quote unquote, free compared to the civilizations that came before them. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of them today, but most of them seem to have absolute monarchs with like series of governors that ruled over everything. So the idea of even some form of council is technically better marginally. When you have a larger group of people, even if they're all like elite or limited or men or whatever kind of category, it's still more likely for someone within that group to have some greater wisdom or empathy for the rest of the people. Some person can speak up and say, hey, we should account for this thing. When it's only one person or even two or five, you're less likely to get a diversity of opinions, world experiences than if it's 100. 100 is still a super small percentage when you're talking about populations of hundreds of thousands, but it's still better than Now, here's where, here's where I'm going to push back on that a little bit, even though I, we partly agreed. And, and this isn't something I'm going to push back on right away, but say that it's going, certain details are going to emerge throughout this episode that are going to argue against that in this particular circumstance. And the reason is, part of the problem that isn't realistic to our own world here is that when you're so much power concentrated at the top, you have an expectation to wield that power a certain way or else you get removed from that power. And in this case, it's particularly true with Valyria because the, the people at the top are more powerful than the people one step below them than perhaps any human civilization we can imagine because the, they're dragon yeah. lords, right? That gives them... It's functionally hereditary. Yeah, it gives them so much more power than the normal elite would have in any society that humanity's ever probably known that we could compare to. Even like the pharaohs don't sit above their constituents like the dragon lords do. And, and maybe they do in terms of worship, like they were pharaohs were actually worshiped, but in terms of mm. actual power, I think that the dragon lords... Yeah, they were disguised. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it is interesting to think about the idea that let's say that everyone with a nuclear weapon gets to vote. Yeah. Well, that does not mean we want to give more people nuclear weapons. You know it's what I mean? Great <laughs> way to put it. That's, that's, that's amazing. exactly yeah. Valeria's perspective. Yes, that is exactly <laughs> there because that's why they locked it with 40 families, apparently. They're like... Yeah, there's only four, only 40 of us want this or can have this. We don't want it to be any more. So it is, you can see it, how that kind of works out. The problem is that <laughs> those that co power concentrated that in that group is tends to be evil only and it chews up the the good elements, uh, which we'll get to. Yeah, we're definitely ahead of ourselves here. Let's let's dial it back and and return to the grove here. Are the, so are the, are the are the families of Valeria basically like the countries with nuclear weapons in the UN? Right, kind, kind, of, of, kind of thing. Kind of they are, except functionally. Except yeah. they're like, more. If only we're allowed to have the nuclear weapons. You're not. Yeah. There's Security Council. Yeah. And now we're going to vote on where you can travel, what taxes you pay, yes. et cetera, et cetera. What's everyone else supposed to do? And there does seem to be evidence of that. After all, the Valyrians didn't really go elsewhere until the Targaryens fled. I mean, they went elsewhere in that they conquered, but they didn't live elsewhere. The Dragon Rider families, I mean. All the, the Dragon Rider families just pretty much stayed in Valyria throughout all of it, which is something that we need to consider going forward. Part of it's just culture. They wanted to be there. It's the center of power and wealth and, and prestige. There's an implication that it was part of their system that there was maybe some rules in place about that. That said, then how did 
the Targaryens, how were they able to get around that? I don't know, but we'll get to that. As I said, this stuff all comes up together. It's really neat how the heart tree and the concept of Brandon the Builder and is introduced at the same time as Valyria and the Doom. So you have really strong ice and fire vibes all together. And it's pretty cool. The sword itself is like the culmination of that because it's called ice. And it's wielded by a Stark of Winterfell, but it's forged by dragon fire and sorcery in the fires of Valyria, which is, boom, that's just, yeah, I really, I, I appreciate that, the symbolism of ice in so many ways, especially because it gets split later. George has done so much work with just that sword. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Joe Magician, you have some takes on Catelyn Stark here. I appreciate this, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, this is going to be part of my uh, Catelyn Stark appreciate Catelyn campaign, but <laughs> appreciate her. She is a walking library really in Song of Ice and Fire. Maybe the most knowledgeable character who uh, POV we get, that's not Tyrion Lannister. She knows everything. Yeah. All the information we get about here, history of the North, a lot of the internal politics, all that stuff is just like cat idly thinking about, hmm, let me search my memory banks for the history of everything the reader wants to know. <laughs> Going off the idea of the introduction of ice and fire into the story, it serves a dual purpose and that it's, save, it's sending out an overall message that all of this has been lost, right? That the story takes place in an interregnum of magic. The magical world has fallen at least as far as the people in power believe and the common people. But the reader, you saw the others in the prologue, so it's reasonable to question if these magical powers are really gone. If ice can return in the prologue, maybe fire can too. And then, of course, you cut to the rest of the story and you see Danny's dragons being hatched, Beric returns from the dead, the glass candles are burning. It allows a lot of foreshadowing so that if you go back on this, you can be like, oh, it wasn't really that surprising that any of this happened. George told us with the ice example that fire would be returning to match it, basically. Yeah. Then we have pretty astonishing examples on both sides. We've, of course, discussed the ice stuff, but you mentioned some of the biggest events that are magical within the series. Biggest shocking moments are basically fire magic oriented, right? Mm. Like you, you mentioned Danny's dragons and like Barrack. Of course, we have undead rising Eric, the other way. Just but... resurrection, just casually dropped. Yeah. <laughs> so Valyria, we could argue, is the core of the fire side of the ice and fire from a lore perspective. It's like the, the core lore. And of course, it's expanded on eventually with R'hllor and Ashai and, and maybe connections between all three in the distant past or maybe in coming in the story. Uh, that part, who knows? And certainly onward, there's going to be even more explanation or expansion of some of these things. But one thing I want to point to is just how there's a pretty strong vibe of evil here right away on both sides. Kat is unnerved by the heart tree, but she's a little bit, I don't know, she's, she recognizes how she doesn't like swords, but she's still taken in by ice because it's beautiful. And that's really interesting because if we go right back to Lord of the Rings here, it's becoming less true every year, but it used to be really reliable that if you had read A Song of Ice and Fire... You would at least seen the movies Lord of the Rings, if not also read Lord of the Rings first. That's less true now in 2022, back in the early 2000s. That was not unlikely to be true. Point being, when you see Doom there in chapter three and you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, it's be hard not to think of Mount Doom, especially when there's this all-consuming cataclysm and high magic and volcanoes and, and evil, right? The, run, the One Ring is super, super evil. Mount Doom is in Mordor, an evil place, right? This is Tolkien, where things are a lot less gray. Good and evil are a lot easier to tell apart in Middle-earth. So you have an evil ring forged by an ultimate evil in an evil realm. And that, I'm sure George knew people would take it that way, or at least get that vibe. 
And it's not explicit here, but it certainly becomes that. We see, oh yeah, the Valyrians are, their culture was damn evil. <laughs> like, they didn't start that way, but it ended that way. The Valyrian Empire, civilization, whatever, how long did it last? Hundreds of years, thousands? thousands. 5,000 or more, right? yeah, 6,000 so, maybe. Throughout that, there's going to be phases of, I don't know, greater or lesser evil or oppression or well, conquering what or you'll see though, or whatever. What you'll yeah. see, though, is the slavery period happened not that late into it. And then they've been a, a horrible slaving empire for most of that time. Mm. So it's pretty hard to... You know, <laughs> to say as well, there's not much. I mean, maybe there's some good on top of that, but it's the bar. The bar is yeah. so high for evil with them because there's just all this slavery and 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 all, the, the worst yeah. versions of it where they send them into mines to die and all that. And worse than that too. Yeah, that's accurate. magical versions of that as well, like experimenting on them. Right. So <laughs> it's pretty bad, actually. Which yeah. is a Lord of the Rings thing too, it's, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. There, uh, the connections between the Valyrians and the Lord of the Rings continue to come just like fast and furious into the books and that you can trace large parts of the Valyrian society directly to two groups from Lord of the Rings. You have the followers of Morgoth and you have the elves. If you take away from the fact that the Valyrians are basically inhumanly beautiful, they are very similar in construction to the reigns of Morgoth and Sauron. Mm. They are ancient, ancient magical figures. They have volcanoes, basically worship them, can use them. They have dragons, they make genetic experiments. That's how the orcs were made. They were made from genetically engineered elves, basically. They have themes of fire and blood. They have slaves, they're conquerors. Yet the thing that stops most readers from making the direct connection between them is that most of the denizens of Morgoth's and Sauron's empires, I guess, were hideous nightmare creatures, and they literally corrupted the land around them. Yeah, there isn't really an orc but, equivalent in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, the orcs that were taken over by them were then corrupted and made horrifically evil and ugly looking and horrible to read about. Mm. The orcs, the goblins, Urukai, the black Numeronians, all that other kind of stuff. And I think that's part of George's trick of mm. the Valyrians, is that he's taking things he's a fan of and making them a part of his own. The Valyrians sort of answer the obvious question of Lord of the Rings and people who have read the Cimmerillion. It's like, wait, why didn't the elves, none of them, ever willingly join the forces of evil in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like guys like Finor and the Noldor seem like they have a lot in common with Morgoth and Sauron. Seems like they would be best buds. <laughs> um, why, didn't, why didn't any of them ever join? Like, why didn't Finor serve Morgoth? Well, the answer is that he stole his magical cool gems. That's the reason. <laughs> but if you do a thought experiment of if the elves did join the forces of evil in Lord of the Rings, what would they look like? Well, Valyria is not a bad mm -hmm. answer to that question. It's pretty much on the nose. And in fact, if I remember my Lord of the Rings lore correctly, didn't Sauron disguise himself as a really beautiful elf to yeah. like manipulate and... Exactly. Yep, there you go. Absolutely. All right. It's a pretty George thing to do to subvert expectations, right? Yeah. Like Tolkien, mm -hmm. the bad guys are ugly, the good guys are pretty. Well, hmm. George Martin makes Brienne ugly and Jamie pretty. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Good call. Good call. I like this comment you have about what they are. <laughs> Yeah, when you're talking about the idea that Sauron, he used to be beautiful. He used to call himself Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, otherwise known as Hot Sauron uh, in, the, in the Lord of the Rings fandom and what will be coming up in the TV show. Oh, yeah, we'll but the Valyrians <laughs> themselves are basically just like a race of Hot Saurons. They're horrifying evil on the inside, representing the worst parts of humanity while appearing outwardly as celestial hot gods who just, quote unquote, love freedom. I want... Maybe that's a commentary on something recent. It's, it's just like the question, is the Song of Ice and Fire basically Lord of the Rings fan fiction? Yeah, at least the Valyrians are. <laughs> that's neat. Well, point. 
getting back to how Catelyn is subverted, not subverted, but just vaguely sees the sword ice as beautiful, which is a really interesting concept. And it's very similar, a, a microcosm version of the One Ring and the Rings of Power, which is that they're seductive. Like you can't not resist this power when you're offered it. It's almost impossible, if not outright impossible. And this is a, like I'm saying, like a vague shadow of what's happening here where she rec- she doesn't like swords, but this one, because it looks nice, <laughs> is, is, oh, I like this one though, because it's pretty, but it's actually a, more efficient at killing. It's the whole concept of, sure, it's evil, but we can use it for good. Boromir's struggle. Actually, a lot of characters in Lord of the Rings have that struggle, but he's one of the ones that stands out. Obviously, he's a good example here because he's Sean Bean. But <laughs> it's, it's really neat to think about how she, she's taken in. She's bribed by its beauty. It, it is seductive. And that's exactly what you're saying. It's the same concept of Sauron looking hot, so people get around that, or the Valyrians look good. So that distracts us from how damn evil they are, or at least their culture. I don't like guns. But this bazooka is gold plated. <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Oh. oh, yeah. That is a seductive gun right there. That's what's up. Yeah. And uh, like Valyrian steel is Tyrion is when he sees he sticking with ice, when he sees the, the two halves of it, he's like totally entranced by it. And it, but he, he recognizes the darkness in it, too, because he gets close to it and sees the colors. And that's not as clear here in this opening scene. But anyway, like imagine Gregor Clegane, the undead version with a Valyrian steel blade. Like he's just that's not it's not a good thing. <laughs> but in the hands of <laughs> in the hands of, I don't know, Sandor Clegane fighting the others, that would be cool. You know? <laughs> I think it, it creates the idea that Kat is a secret uh, Valyrian stand. She'd be on Twitter <laughs> with Valyrian supremacy and her bio and all that other kind of weird stuff. And I, I think it also works from George on like a, a very a, a subtle foreshadowing level because if you're used to Michelle Clapton from the show, she obviously has brown Michelle hair. Fairly. But Kat in the books, ha- oh, fairly, I'm sorry, wrong the one. Costume designer, uh, deep cut. Oh, <laughs> she has uh, dark brown hair, but in the book, she has pretty vivid red yeah. hair. And George likes the idea that red hair is fire. So Catelyn being seduced by the idea of fire works oh. with the whole idea she's going with. And also that she'll eventually be raised as a fire white. George working it's, backwards from things he already wrote. I just wrote. want to say, I just want to shout out to John getting with Ygritte after having Catelyn's mommy issues. The redhead. I don't <laughs> yeah, like the redhead. That's gets swept under the, the rug uh, because of the show, but that's, you're right. That's under the radar. He's finally getting that love from a redhead he, he wanted. That's the real reason he hesitated at first. He's like, uh, no, it wasn't his vows. It was like... <laughs> like oh, she reminds me of my stepmom. <laughs> Not uncommon, no. unfortunately. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing a great never found about, out about that. Just wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Should we worry about Sansa being resurrected? Uh, no, oh. I hope not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen any foreshadowing for that. Yeah, but maybe, uh, maybe, it's, maybe I'm just in denial. All right, son. This all describes the Valyrians really well. They're judged beautiful and refined and cultured, but this is really, if you dig below the surface just a little bit, their most outstanding natural quality is their contempt for other races. Their most outstanding unnatural quality is their bond with dragons. And those two are connected because they use that strength to have superiority and to get excused from their awful behavior. And even, this is a good time to point out that even beauty standards are often decided by strength, by people in power. Like modern examples are all over social media. She is talking about filters and things like that. That's a, yeah. a, an example. <laughs> now, I don't mean the choosing to use them. I mean the people designing the filters. There's a certain influence on the production side of that as to what goes out into the public. Like certain beauty influencers have enormous 
influence. I mean, how many people out there are trying to look like Kim Kardashian? I'm not saying that's even a bad thing, but it's amazing how powerful a particular small group of people have and impacting how everybody else wants to look. Magazine covers. Somebody clip that too. (laughs) Damn it. I'm really, this is is my last episode. (laughs) Hollywood casting directors, financiers. I mean, this isn't grassroots stuff, right? It's just, this is decided, this is decided at the top, not at the bottom uh, in a lot of cases. It makes me wonder, was there such thing as like a glass candle Instagram stars <laughs> where they're influenced on the glass candle network? Where they do like house tours of their impossible magical oh. castles in Valyria. Wow. They have like speed volcano eyeshadow. Like they're so vain <laughs> and they have the ability to basically use FaceTime. Maybe there was. Was there Valyrian Instagram George? Somebody asked him this question. It would question. have been lit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Fire emojis. Wow, yeah, the jewelry, the bling they would have shown off on that. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's their society. It's an Instagram society. <laughs> oh, boy. Fire and blood, like and subscribe. <laughs> Exactly right. <laughs> oh boy. Yes. Well, we've we've discovered a whole new angle to this. <laughs> this is the kind of fun topic mashups you get when you invite the the great and powerful Joe Magician to your stream. It's like magic the way these topics just shift and and mutate <laughs> into something we never could have predicted. No one saw Glass Candle Network coming, but now it's all we <laughs> <That's> want. <right. laughs> but now let's talk about the first mention of Valyria in the World of Ice and Fire itself. Uh, technically, the first mention is like the table of contents, but that's more technical than even we need to be. The next mention is one we've seen already in discussion of the annals of history. Here's the short version of that. What little is known to us of those days are contained in the oldest of texts, the tales written down by the Andals, by the Valerians and the Giscari, and even those distant people of fabled Ashai. Yet, however ancient those lettered races, they were not even children during the Dawn Age. So Yandel opts to name them and three other ancient lettered races. He was going to find a way to include the Andals no matter what, because that's his people and that's who he's writing the book for. But it is a fair inclusion, I think. They are a lettered race. They're relevant. Sort of going in time order here. Probably the Andals are the youngest, followed by the Valyrians and the Giscari, and the Ashai are most likely even older than that. Nina writes that's also A Song of Ice and Fire sort of goes back and forth with whether or not the first men had written records. So I can see why Yandel wouldn't even include them among the lettered races. So yeah, that makes sense too. And harsh. Yeah, harsh, tough, but fair. <laughs> and they might be in reverse order, like I said, but there's some argument over that. Now, what do you think about this with this with this oldness? It's it's really old. And it's hard to fathom compared to the real world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, I think it's George's classic method of adding depth to his world building by implication without actually like providing mm. it. These civilizations are old and possibly old, but they aren't even the oldest. Look, they're the children in the grand scheme of history. There's even more ancient powerful empires out before them. Just trust me, fam, it, they're definitely out there. To quote the famed mathematician Pierre de Fermat writing in his textbook about his last theorem, I've discovered a truly marvelous proof of this, which the margin is too narrow to contain. It's like George doing the same thing. I can't write this stuff. There's not enough room. I would do it if I can. And he does the same thing in The Thousand Worlds, where he creates a sense of expansiveness and wonder by outlining kind of the broad strokes of this history. 
And it creates an implication of world building without actually having to provide like a Cimmerillion level of depth to any of it and cloaking it in the idea of sort of like lost knowledge and fog of history. Mm. But there's other ones that are obviously should be here and aren't. Like, where's the Carthine in this? The, <laughs> yeah, Quake the Quava, yeah. civilization? They're being erased from history <laughs> by Yandalf. <laughs> Clearly, the greatest city that ever was and ever will be should be in this list, but it's not. Totally, right. George is doing kind of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and there's... Also mentioned by Yandel of Valyrian texts, Nina references this. We're really curious about what records survived and what didn't. Mm. And we have, perhaps it's perhaps a vain hope, but it is a hope that, say, Sam will delve into some of these at least a little bit while he's got Citadel POVs, chapters, and I don't know how many of those we can even expect, but hopefully a few. So there could be a lot more written. It is hinted at here, quote, of the history of Valyria as it is known today, many volumes have been written over the centuries, and the details of their conquests, colonizations, feuds of the dragon lords, the gods they worshipped, and more could fill libraries and still not be complete. But he also mentions things about how some of the scrolls are missing and how most of the records were destroyed by the doom, so it's left unclear in, in a George-like fashion where he gives himself room for... There could be quite a expansion. lot. Yeah, it could be yep. expanded, but if he wants to leave it this vague... It won't be weird in terms of our expectations, I don't think. Classic gardener, <laughs> leaving behind those scraps and scrolls. <laughs> you know it. The second mention of Valyria is a quick note on how their word for obsidian means frozen fire, which is neat and very relevant to their homeland of volcanic landscape, which we'll talk about shortly. The third mention of them is a comparison to the Green Seers, which is very interesting. This is not to say that the Green Seers did not know lost arts that belong to the higher mysteries, such as seeing events at a great distance or communicating across half a realm, as the Valyrians, who came long after them, did. So this is the glass candles again, right? I mean, that's apparently how they do it. Maybe there were other means. Maybe they had rougher means of doing it in the past that was eventually... Little mini dragon. Yeah. Eventually shaped into a sneak flying around. Oh my God. <laughs> Using like tying yeah. letters to their ankles. <laughs> That's the original what, what wyverns were at first. Yeah. You can't use dragons for that because they just burn uh, the messages by accident. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, no, that's, uh, the, that's the good part is that if they get compromised, they just destroy the messages. Oh, the messages can self destruct. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that's amazing. It's like a post with a bazooka. It's perfect. <laughs> Wow. Wow. The implication is pretty strong here. And he, he, we've seen too, Eandel likes to downplay the magic, but he doesn't say that they were rumored to do. He says they did it. Right? He says, as the Valyrians right. came along after them, did. Not were said to do. This is a straightforward, they did this. It's interesting to consider, did they have like a network of glass candling around? I, I don't think so. Again, they were so focused in Valyria, but it would be a way for them to exert control over their vast land holdings in the long run. That does make sense as a method of ruling from afar. You could use something like this. A messaging system would be really valuable for holding power over such a wide stretch of land. That's true. Instant transmission is pretty powerful in the age of dudes on horses <laughs> carrying letters. <laughs> yeah. You can do a lot of things that yeah, way. Yeah, it's even faster than, than the Dragon Pony Express or whatever, <laughs> Dragon Raven Express. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to even imagine how valuable it would be because not just the idea of being able to like give instructions to someone from a distance, but the, the intelligence, just the knowledge that, all right, this army has just assembled, letting someone know that a month before they get there, it, no one could, they, 
the level of preparation you could have on a military scale or even an economic or even weather, just on and on, the number of things that the value that this could have, letting people Absolutely. know ahead of time a hurricane is on the oh, way. Oh, true. Invaluable. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. That's a great point. Because in the ancient world, you just don't really have besides natural means for that. Something, my knee, yeah. is, my knee hurts. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it's going to rain, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> they could call it the Valyrian weather service. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they had one. Uh, I also, one thing I like about this is that George is creating the idea here that there's really not such a thing as like children magic or Valyrian magic. It's more like kind of like an elemental force. They all can use like electricity. They just have their own way of tapping into it. Yeah. Um, and using it. There's a quote about this somewhere. It's like, the force is not a power you have. It's not about lifting rocks. It's an energy between all things, Ooh. tension, a balance that binds the universe together. Or I guess in this case, fire. Yeah. <laughs> <Same kind of laughs> yes, yes. I like that too, because conceptually, it's like how we all humans were born. I mean, as a species, we were born with the power of speech and different humans in different places used that for the same thing, which was to learn how to communicate. But the languages are all different, right? There's no, we don't have the same language everywhere. That'd be really weird if it all came out the same. So it's the same here. It'd be weird if everything just became a crab. Yes, that would be really weird. That literally <laughs> happened. Yeah. Everything, everything in the ocean evolves to yeah. crabs eventually. So like, like six different just, times in, in ancient history. All of, our, all of our speech just becomes Latin eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it just naturally yeah. happens. <laughs> So, of course, just as we would shape words differently based on random things, based on different cultures developing language in different places, but you would need to express the same things. There'd be exceptions like, well, yes, the Dothraki don't have a word for thank you, but <laughs> most cultures, but every culture has a word for no, right? Or something like, I guess actually China doesn't, but they have a way to express negative. You just, you, you can still express that same concept without having that same word. And that's, that's what I'm getting at here is shape that in the form of magic. You're drawing these elemental forces and they're going to come out differently, but it's the same energy, whether it's the power of speech mm. or the power of fire and blood. <laughs> or the force. Or the force. Yes, the force is... Such a nerd, George is. Of course you would use the force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just... It's cool, man. <laughs> it's different... Ver it's the same concept. Different versions of the force. <laughs> different... <laughs> same energy <laughs> yeah <laughs> next up is a mention of Valyrian steel links at the citadel that's the next time Valyria comes up and then there's a mention of the doom in comparison to the breaking of the arm of Dorne like looking at mass uh, weather or destructive events or cataclysms then it's mentioned that Azor Ahai existed before the rise of Valyria so overall the word Valyria or Valyrian appears 240 times in the world of ice and fire which is a really huge number because that's that's like triple what it appears in a song of ice and fire which, of course, Song of Ice and Fire is way longer than the World of Ice and Fire. And you might be surprised that it's only 20, comes up 23 times in all of Danny's chapters, but a lot of it is early. I think it sets the stage, and then it's, you don't really need to be constantly reminded of where, of where her family came from, of where her bloodline came from. But so he does a lot of work on that early and then just reminds you every once in a while. But it also comes out a lot in Fire and Blood. 85 mentions in Fire and Blood, which is, that's a pretty, you know, so that just shows, again, the numbers aren't important other than to reveal how big the level of influence is, not just in quality, but in quantity. It's both. Although we were talking about this before we went live, that the actual Valyrian section of the World of Ice and Fire is out of like <laughs> several hundred. It's like it's everywhere, but it's not condensed. It's scattered. Yeah, yeah. There's like huge periods of time or just a sentence or two. And then, and then there's just bits and pieces here and there. Like some of the great examples we have in this episode aren't from that section. They're from like the section on Kohor or Norvos or whatever, mm. um, or just from straight from... A Song of Ice and Fire itself. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> the actual word of Ice and Fire, way, it's oh. the springboard. 
Oh, I wanted to share a, just a quick correction. Yeah. There is a word for no in Chinese. Oh. This, that's all. I've always just heard that. Okay. Yeah, you just heard that. You said it. I was like, what? And I, I Googled it. And then people in the chat, like Amy Blackfire, who knows her stuff, and other people were like. Yeah, she knows Chinese. They were like, there's a word for it. They gave okay. us the word for it. I'm pretty sure know. it was my friend who spoke Chinese. So I guess he was wrong. That's some common <laughs> misconception. <laughs> Are you messing with yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he messed with me like 15 years ago. It finally paid off for him. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make another quick point too, though. You said that Danny only has 23 mentions, but that's like a third of the mentions. You're right. You know, maybe it's not it, it is. that many for her, but but relative to the other characters, it's a huge yeah, percentage she has the most, she gets, yeah. which makes sense. She's more connected to it, both to like her heritage and her physical location. Again, the, the point of running through this too is not just to show how centered they are, but it's very telling with that influence. And then they're the example of the pinnacle of magical power, military might, wealth, and of course, evil, because they used most of those things for mostly for greed. And, and of course, the slavery goes without saying is about as evil as it gets. And all the killing is pretty damn evil too. Like quibbling over which is more evil. It's really evil either way. Crappy race. Yeah, it just, uh, and, and this is framed alongside the ultimate evil on the ice side is the others. And there's a lot in common that they have, <laughs> right? They're just trying to dominate and sort of enslave. Mm. And doesn't matter if you're dead or not. They want what they want. And there's no negotiating with that. Now the quote goes, unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess mm. it. Otherwise, more colloquial known as absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. And it's the same idea. I, I also like the contrast here because as you said, George is making the point to make sure he contrasts Valerians with the others, but especially the children. And it's like almost like a tortoise and a hare situation where the Valerians burned bright and ran fast with their dragons to become a world power and then were snuffed out even quicker than they started. Yeah. Meanwhile, you look at the children who also have extreme power, but they have taken a much slower, long-term, less like boots on the ground invasion approach and have found themselves having a much more dominant role for a lot longer, although they're starting to die out slowly over time. Which is less evil? It's debatable though, because it's not, they're both sort of doing the same goals for themselves, but they're going about it differently. I don't know which one is more evil. Is it like an active conquest of the world or somebody that from the shadows controls all of world history basically to suit themselves? It's like a little bit of both there. Oh yeah, all right, well said. And even when you look at a world map, like this map behind me, I'm not sure how clear it is that when you, sh obviously when you look at Westeros, it's just Westeros. Drop the shoulder. Yeah. When, when you look at the whole world, other shoulder. There we go. Valyria is basically the middle. Hell yeah. Valyria is basically the middle, right? It's centered. I mean, we don't know how big the whole world is, but in the known world, it's right there in the middle. And that explains a lot because it's part of why they gain so much power. It's not just the dragons. Uh, it's this positioning as well uh, gave them a lot of advantages that they exploited. So let's get to the first of several sections devoted them, to them, beginning with the rise of Valyria. Here is a quote about their early origins. Sorry, real quick. I, I'm still spinning what Joe said sure. before I read this quote. I want to say I would rather have someone in the background manipulating my environment, leading mm -hmm. me to decide to be a miner than someone putting me in shackles and forcing me down into the mine. Yeah, I think so, that's yeah. pretty clear, right? That's not a tough call, I think, right? <laughs> but, yeah. but which is, yeah, which is why it's, which I think is why we can be definitive on judging the Valyrians as a whole. Obviously, mm. there's individuals that we don't know of. This is where this culture went. It was so devoted to just some awful, just re re recurring yeah. atrocities. 
it's an interesting question, though. Of, is it better to be tricked into something or to be forced into it? And how much does that matter? Like active yeah. knowledge of what's happening to you. And I think that's an uh, that's a question George is asking the audience. Rather, I mean, you can obviously answer is Valeria it'd be worse, right? But it's something to think about. Yeah, like where is that line? Like in this case, the line is pretty clear. It's that the Valyria is, yeah, it's worse. But there you could, the trick could get more and more evil or more and more deadly and until the point where it might be like, oh, I don't know which one is worse now. You're right, it is a, a worthy question, but very de- determined by the circumstances, I suppose. Classic. <laughs> Good conflict right <laughs> there, my man. <laughs> All right, let's have that quote. Sheltered there amidst the great volcanic mountains known as the 14 Flames, were the Valerians, who learned to tame dragons and make them the most fearsome weapon of war that the world ever saw. The tales the Valerians told of themselves claimed they were descended from dragons and were kin to the ones they now control. So long before they dominated east, west, and north, and even a bit south over the waters, they were shepherds amidst volcanoes or something. We're not entirely sure. Krasnus, the Astapori slaver, the one that Danny turns the tables on, refers to them as, as sheep bangers. And old geese ruled an empire when the Valyrians were still banging sheep. That's not what you wrote in the document. No, but yes, I'm... There's a different word I'm using disease. the PG-13 version. And he says, but we're the sons of the harpy. And he, this is something that happens in the real world. They, they, they disown themselves when they make comments like this. Because one thing, of course, it's the obvious, well, this is just straight up racism, which is never a good look. But beyond that, that's not really what I was pointing to, because that's straightforward. I mean, like, so these, they're pathetic because they did that in their ancient history, but you lost to them. You lost to sheep bangers. (laughs) I would like it if you bleeped that word in (laughs) post-production. Disease. You make it sheep beep. Bleep bangers. Sheep beep. Sheep beep. Sheep bleep. That's really good. Yeah, I'm sure the Giscari worked when he starts out a massive empire. Everyone has humble roots at, at some yeah, point. Right. So it's like, it's if a weird... sheep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Got him. laughs> also, just sort of thinking about that, that story, then those are some pretty hardcore shepherds and sheep to be living on site, active lava flows and volcanoes erupting all the time. Yeah, right. Also, raises the possibility of Illyrian sheepdogs. Oh. Are we talking about like long summer collies? Ooh, long summer Hello. collies with purple eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I want. Somebody make the make the fan or actually San Rixing will probably make that if I say yes. to her. But this is also brought up again. This is sort of reinforced with like Sheep Stealer, the dragon who makes sheep his favorite tasty snacks. So that people that want to be nice to Sheep Stealer just show up and do them. Drogon hunts sheep as well alongside young girls. Unfortunately, as dragons are wanting to do. <laughs> and it, it's a very like YA fantasy idea that there's like a farm boy or a shepherd or something that finds a magical thing and that starts their adventure to becoming an important part of the world. Like King Arthur with the sword and the stone of the series Aragon is literally this. It's a boy, a shepherd or a farmer that finds a dragon egg and mm. becomes an important part of the world. So this could literally be true and George kind of riffing on a fantasy trope of the shepherd that goes to becoming a king. It sounds ridiculous, but it's not when you know the fantasy genre. Yeah, that's neat. I like that idea. Obviously, I'm familiar with that concept, but I didn't think of it here. It's, it does really fit quite well. There's this suggestion that they developed in isolation within these this peninsula. It's a peninsula with volcanoes around it, so it does make sense that they would have some isolation. And well, that's a bit of a joke too. They were sheltered there, all right, with their incest and their... Uh, closed bloodlines, perhaps. And this may have helped, though. Nina writes, this may have helped them develop because they were less early on subject to outside invasions. The Giscari who dominated the region, the nearby region, it may have 
been a natural border against that. They may have, if without the 14 flames or, or maybe just a few of them, maybe three of the 14 flames, something like that. Without that, the, the Giscari may have overrun them early on and there may never have been a Valyria, which maybe that would have been a good thing. But no, <laughs> but still, it, it's relevant to their, the natural terrain, their natural environment had a lot to do with, I think, sheltering them, isolating them and enabling them to gain their strength without a lot of the ancient world difficulties that other cultures had with neighboring difficulties or difficult, difficult neighbors, actually, <laughs> put it a different way. By the way, um, I'm not going to quite remember some of these details, right? But there was a, like a 1900s, I think, Russian scientist who was trying to trace the roots of seeds. He was, mm. he was like worried about the world's food production. And he like went around the world and got seeds of all different types of plants, all different types of uh, climates and environments and cultures trying to the early roots of like tracking data or whatever. But anyway, his theory was that places we thought agriculture would have developed most early, like basins, I don't think that makes sense. He thought that it would have been in higher altitudes mm. where it was less likely for militaries to overrun them. Uh, and he was right. It was like in plateaus of Siberia uh, and Afghanistan, where it, mm. it, as far as we could tell, the earliest bits of agriculture were forming. That makes a lot of sense. And that's going to become very relevant here because as we'll see, volcanoes in the long term the soil that is produced by volcanic activity is some of the best in the world. So that also jives with what you're saying quite well. They would have fertile soil even on higher ground in some cases. And the sheltered idea, it, it also creates kind of suggestion that the Valerians were maybe desperate for land, that they took the land that nobody wanted, that nobody would challenge them for. It's the kind of thing that's been abandoned by larger civilizations around them to go raise sheep with because they don't want it. Hmm. Like they likely saw the volcanoes and potentially wild dragons, which are almost certainly there, as a massive threat to any sort of stable colonization. Yeah. And that's a very common idea in Valerian history that they tend to make the best of lands that no one else wants. Like Bravos itself is a spiritual successor to this, that the, that the Bravosi slaves, when they fled Valeria, they found the most windswept, god-awful lagoon that nobody wanted in the world and made it their own. Mm. And George really loves the idea of recurring themes throughout history. He wants, he wants the wheel of time idea to happen. So it'd be fascinating if the Valerians are actually most similar to the Bravosi. Oh. They're refugees from somewhere else that are ran to the most inhospitable chunk of land they could find in the entire world. 14 volcanoes sounds pretty good. Well, yeah, what if they were escaped slaves from some yeah. prehistoric empire or like the Great Empire of the Dawn or something like that, which is we, we theorize quite anything. a bit. Yeah. yeah. And from Karth, the slaver OGs. Absolutely, yeah. That fits particularly well. If they managed to get through the red waste or something, they would have made their escape and then no one would find them amidst the 14 flames. And it also fits... Would even want to look. Yeah, or would even want to look. You're right. And, and it also fits with the early settlement of the North. We joked a little bit. Well, people surely settled the reach first because it's so much nicer. But it, the World of Ice and Fire makes it pretty clear that, yeah, that's pretty true. But people went to the North pretty quickly because it's, it's land. It's free land. And that's still a place to stake a kingdom. And maybe, maybe those were the less powerful people that moved north in the early days of the Dawn Age because the stronger families held the South. And so, like, well, we'll take what's there. Uh, it may not have been slavery they were fleeing from, but still just dominance by a, a power that they couldn't overcome. And they had an answer. They could run away and, and build elsewhere, which was possible in the ancient world in, in a way that it's not so much later. It's also generally a strong human drive to push and explore and adventure. Point, yeah. Like even now, the Earth is fully mapped out. We're going to the moon and Mars. We don't stop. <laughs> That's you know? a very true. That is very true. Our curiosity is pretty endless, isn't it? 
And I can just imagine George chuckling to himself, writing bravos, the exactly same as Valeria, but nobody thinks that. <laughs> That's Almost the kind of nobody. thing he amuses himself with. <laughs> you make a great point as well, Joe, about the dragons being one of the reasons maybe people avoided this peninsula, because we hear that dragons probably, more than probably, because there's evidence for it, existed in other places around the world, or did anyway, but extreme heat. It seems to be their favorite. It's what they prefer. So if there's dragons scattered around the world, sure, that makes sense. But they would most congregate in a spot like this. And somehow, though, this became true for the Valyrians, too, in a way that seems more than natural, more than not just natural. For, for example, I don't know, the Inuit people are going to be really good at resisting cold compared to, say, I don't know, people with my background, cultural background, but they're not yeah. magical. It, it, there's some pretty strong evidence that the Valyrians have managed to put magic on top of this, but they probably would also have developed a little bit of extra heat tolerance. But yeah, <laughs> they grew a little bit like the dragons in more ways than one. Yeah, I think we were talking uh, about Peruvian people and we were talking about how they um, acclimated to heights. Oh, yeah. To different altitudes Altitude, as well. That's a good one, yeah. And I have an example from my own life. I've lived in the Northeast. I live in Massachusetts, but for part of my childhood, I lived in California. And so I've experienced very different biomes in my life. And I can tell you that like the exact same amount that Massachusetts people are proud of being able to withstand cold and snow are the exact same amount Californians are proud of them being able to ex <laughs> uh, deal with extreme heat. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing everywhere. Yeah, yeah. California. We'll adapt. Yeah. <laughs> Never gets to 120 degrees Oof. here. That would melt Massachusetts yeah, people. Really, <laughs> that's true. And meanwhile, down here, whenever there's snow in Atlanta, we don't know what to do. Yeah, we just we make fun of you yeah. guys. Uh -huh. Those stupid southerners. They don't know how to deal with we snow. Really don't. Like, why would you? Yeah, why would we? Exactly. Yeah, why, yeah. We don't have practice. We lack practice. What do we do? Hang, go to the north for practice? Like, let's go to the north, practice dealing with snow. Go to Wisconsin for a year and you'll come back and be able to deal with it. <laughs> You might as an individual to deal with it, but it's still hard for uh, yeah. you know, a civilization to deal with yeah. it. It doesn't make Absolutely. sense for Atlanta to spend billions of dollars on all the equipment <laughs> yeah, that you need true. when it only happens yeah. once every five years. But I, I know from having moved to Atlanta to Denver that I've lost count of how many times it snowed just in this past month. Wow. It's been like feet of mm -hmm. snow a dozen different yeah. times. And it hasn't stopped and nothing's shut, nothing closed. Everything's just normal. You know? <laughs> Everyone goes to work, school stay yeah, on. I can't imagine it. Like <laughs> I watched a video of a Norwegian snow truck clearing the mountain roads. It was the size of a semi truck, and the the snow was basically almost as high as the truck. <laughs> it was and just I like a big. There. It was just a Ugh. huge snow blower, like blowing it like way off the road. Like it was really impressive. But yeah, cool. they find a way. Humans find a way. I was I saw this thing. Someone had a a heated driveway, so Ooh, that they just turn it on, so and then like they just melt. Isn't that amazing? It's like that yeah, is... humans adapt. Technology, yeah, That's it's cool nice. as hell. Nice. Hot as hell. Sorry. Nina writes here a good point that it's interesting to wonder if the proximity of the 14 flames and or the dragons might have directly led to the Valyrian's magical abilities. Since there's some suggestion that certain magic gets stronger in the presence of dragons, like wildfire maybe gets more potent in the presence of dragons, as we saw in A Clash of Kings and elsewhere. The firewalker in Karth is specifically noted to be able to do more now that dragons have been born again, as we also saw in A Clash of Kings. Now, of course, we have wondered elsewhere whether this is chicken or the egg. Maybe it's the return of magic to the world that's also empowered dragons, but it could be, it also could be both. But the point being here, maybe this is what helped the, the, the Valyrians gain access to magic or whatever innate force magic they had. <laughs> force powers were heightened yeah. by 
proximity to dragons or the, perhaps the 14 flames themselves. Maybe some magic in there, given there's like fire worms and other things that aren't dragons in there too that seem maybe like they're magical. I don't know. Maybe the same thing that gives dragons their magical abilities also infuse the Valerians with magical abilities. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Just, I mean... For example, we know about real world, real world birds. They have adapted to our magnetic sphere. Like they can detect oh, changes yeah. in when it, like when the magnetic field bends differently. Like Tim, that that's a signal for them. To, this is like a marker, like a mile marker, and that's that's amazing to me. That feel, it sounds almost like magic. Like how the heck did they develop that? There's a part of their brain that's like connecting via like a frequency to the magnetic field. That sounds like magic to me. I think you could explain fantasy magic in yeah, ways the same, that sound that like that. It's that same quote where it's like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. Any su- sufficiently advanced evolution. Well said. Yeah, yeah that's really good. Because yeah. <laughs> that is, this is, you're right, this is evolution. This is extremely impressive evolution. I mean, the fact that they fly at all is impressive, but they didn't have this magnetic business going to guide them. Like, that's just, <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> wow. Birds. Birds, birds are amazing stuff. Uh, but birds I think it makes real, a lot of so, sense. You know. <laughs> <laughs> There are no birds. This is true. They're all spies. Watch out for birds. <laughs> How do magnets um, even work? Yeah. <laughs> How do the magnets in birds Beeping work? Magnets, That's what I want to know. Work if I'm <laughs> this is one of our sillier episodes lately. <laughs> <laughs> this is just my influence. This this is what I do. Much like the volcanoes and the dragons affecting the Valyrians, this is what I do to podcasts. <laughs> That's a, it's a, a silly field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I make things more fun. Yes. Uh, but I think it does make sense. That's also a very a Tolkien idea that the idea of being around powerful magical objects makes the people around them change and corrupt and become more magical. That's that's the thing he writes about. That's basically the idea of like Morgoth and Sauron that they corrupt the land, but also they corrupt all the life around them. It, it like feeds off of each other in a feedback loop. So it makes sense that George would be copying that in a sense. And also, by the way, definitely there were wild dragons in Valyria. The evidence worldwide is way too strong. Yeah. There were dragons everywhere and they mostly got killed off. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up mostly just in Valyria, which maybe the Valyrians did that. <laughs> like maybe they wanted a dragon hunt and made sure they were the only ones that had them. Oh, maybe. That's interesting. Yeah. It seems weird that they're gone everywhere except Valyria. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Let's ask the question, what enabled the rise of Valyria apart from dragons and possible magic? What are some more tangible things or perhaps other forms of magic if we want to discuss non-magical or non-dragon magic-y stuff? But really, wealth and mining is one thing, which of course eventually led to Valyrian steel. That was presumably much later. Obviously, it had to at least be after the dragons. Yeah, and you brought up their location. I think that's an important one. The central location is big. Yeah. I I do. Yeah, Nina Nina writes that this, this centralized aspect of them, even though it may not have been prime territory, prime real estate in terms of the volcanoes, once they got settled and had ports and things like that, it should have been yeah. great. They would have had, the, they'd be in the middle of, of a lot. There's a lot to the east, Westeros to the west, the Roinar to the west, Sarnori to the north and west. A lot of the most, you know, quote unquote, successful civilizations of our real world history have been coastal Greece, Italy, England, et cetera, you know. And as a peninsula, almost their entire trade network would be coastal. They could keep very, I mean, Valyria itself was inland. But if you look at the map, you see a lot of the cities that are still there on the map, even though it's, it's ruined. There's, they're all either on the coast or close to it. So you're right. That's pretty telling. 
And then eventually, of course, they had the Valyrian roads that probably made the inland cities even more accessible and, and the back and forth would have been even more potent. Lots of shipping could be done very efficiently, which all just adds to their power. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a great note here too about just who their neighbors happen to be. Yeah, there's a lot of local power vacuums when you look at Western Essos. None of their neighbors were particularly conquests. The biggest civilization nearby was the Roinar, and they seem perfectly content to live like elves of Lord of the Rings, enjoying their fabulous magical lives and their beautiful cities. They weren't going out and knocking over other civilizations. The other city-states were basically not united. That's one of the reasons Valyria really knocked them over so easy, is that they were basically just like independent small kingdoms. Mm. All the big empires are east. So west is basically wide open. There's nobody there that's going to challenge them or really try to put them down. That it's, it's like a weird harmony of Western Essos. I'm sure there was tons of war, but there's no superpower out there to compete with them. Yeah. Also, at this point, Westeros is non-existent as a threat. Like the first men have trouble with boats. They don't even have iron. So they're not doing anything to the Valyrians. They're allowed to basically develop on their own. And another thing I think of is... um. A Vermeer six skins. Oh. Vermeer is a tremendous piece of shit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> an amazing piece of shit. And he uses his magical powers to make himself basically a local robber baron beyond the wall. Like he shakes down local villages for wealth, food, and unfortunately women. That sounds like Bivlerian. The nature of magic users in a world of muggles, basically, is assholes like Vermeer representing the quote-unquote hard men that started civilizations and empires by pushing their unfair magical advantages. Dragons, fire magic, glass candles, Valyrian steel, their dragon horns or whatever, these all lean into the idea mm. that as soon as they started having magic, they could just bully whoever they felt like. And that's what we see from them. Yeah, when you have that much of a obvious power disparity over your neighbors. It seems like the worst people, even if you have a decent civilization, there's going to be that ambitious five to 10% that will just exploit that. Only takes one guy. Yeah, you're right. Only takes one person. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people have to follow them. You know, that's still, another, you know. I had that thought too, as you were talking earlier, Joe, about the how, I don't know, a wizard type character or whatever might corrupt the land around them and also mm-hmm. the people around them. There are a lot of people around Hitler that just went along with it. They, yep. At one point, they were just four-year-old kids playing in a yard. They became corrupted by the, the same sphere of power. And that's without dragons. Yeah, that's without <laughs> dragons, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on and talk about volcanoes, because volcanoes themselves, not only are they, as we've seen, a part of why Valyria was isolated and a source of some of their maybe supernatural stuff, but as we're working on maybe some of the like I said, tangible elements of what gave them power. Volcanoes are a a lot to do with it. Now, they're a huge topic, pun intended. A fairly serious one, given that there are 1,500 active volcanoes in the world with about 12 erupting every day. Now, most eruptions are mild. There's also, but of course, there are devastating ones, like the one that just happened in Tonga in January Mm. 22. That kind is, is quite rare. It's possibly the biggest one in the 21st century. But they aren't finished measuring that one yet. And we're not trying to talk about that right now with respect to that devastation. We're actually trying to talk about the long-term, the long-term effects of volcanoes, which a lot of which are actually positive because they, like I said earlier, with the soil, that's one thing. Volcanoes create a lot of good soil. And George R. R. Martin seems to have done his homework again on this one. When digging on this topic, it appears that there's a lot of reality interspersed with what we're faced with here. About 80% of the Earth's surface is volcano. (laughs) I mean, formed by volcanic activity. 
And one of the main elements of volcanoes is basalt. The igneous rock is basalt a lot of times. What's good about that is it breaks down really slowly. It's got a lot of nutrients that soil and plants like, but because it breaks down slowly, the soil stays good for a long time. Iron, magnesium, potassium. And then when when there's rivers, the stuff gets into the water and gets carried down and the, the banks of the river get really fertile and then you can irrigate that. And then it just... It's a snowball effect of a very good kind. Obviously, they're like a destructive force. But generally speaking, they're not as bad as I thought that they would be. Yeah. And they're worse in modern times than they were in ancient times. And it makes sense that humans would have evolved given how many there are and how much, how many times they go off and they're all around the world. Because to me, every time there's a volcano, I just assume like everyone in that area just dies because they're breathing in smoke. But our lungs can handle it. Generally speaking, our lungs can handle that debris and ash that comes out of volcanoes. In Hawaii, it doesn't deal last with it that long and gets dispersed. The fog, yeah, yeah. volcano fog. Yeah, fog, yeah, fog V-O-G, yeah. that's she, the term. She's from all, yeah, Hawaii, she know. <laughs> yeah, they have active volcanoes there. It's true. Yeah. yeah. You have the fog yeah. warning for the day. You're like, oh, the fog is high today, so let me wear oh, my mask. Like a smog like, warning. Kind yeah, of people thing. in Hawaii are much more used to wear, at least in the Big Island, they're more used to, to that. Hmm. Yeah, it can have like long term if you're continuously exposed to it. And in some places like Hawaii, you might be. But just a volcano going off one time, it doesn't just kill everybody in the village. One effect that it can have, depending on, they can trace trace elements in the volcanic or obsidian or the, the basalt or whatever. They can tell by the percentage of magnesium or whatever else it was hmm. where that volcano was. And so sometimes we find some bit of volcanic relic in Florida that came from Russia. You know, we see trade that must have happened around the world. The, the point is that uh, fluoride is the thing that can be dangerous if there's a high ratio of fluoride. Mm. But even that takes a generation, something that slowly degrades your bones, mm. you know, but it doesn't just like kill the whole village from the fog in one day or something. It, generally speaking, aside from the blast or the, or the lava, the, the, the very immediate vicinity and impact, aside from that, most of the ash isn't terribly bad for humans. Yeah. Unless it's Pompeii. But Pompeii is pretty much an, a, uh, an outlier in terms of how yeah, that was one it was. of the biggest ever. It gets into like our sewage systems. Oh, yeah. It gets into like the gears of trucks. It like affects like modern infrastructure that, that didn't exist back then. There is sort of a survivor bias with oh, that, yeah. though, that like the, the, the towns and cities that did get wiped out like that happened and then people just didn't rebuild them because they're like, well, that's bots. Yeah. So we'll, <laughs> it's, it's, they keep living in the ones that stuck around. But yeah. to build on that, there's definitely an idea though that volcanoes are a double-edged sword. They're the sword without the hilt that George likes talking mm. about or almost in some ways like a bargain with the devil Ooh. or a Faustian bargain in the sense that there is a reason, as you were talking about, that so many civilizations pop up around volcanoes in areas with lots of seismic activity. In particular, uh, dramatic example is, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, the undersea vents that exist on the bottom of the ocean floor, where most of the ocean floor worldwide is basically like an empty desert. But every once in a while, there's these volcanic upwellings, and around them, they teem with life, overblown with life. And it's, it's a very sharp contrast in terms of the volcanic vents versus the desert of the rest of the ocean. It's the same way with humans. There are good reasons to be around volcanoes. Like tectonic activity like volcanoes and earthquakes have a tendency to introduce new or rare nutrients back into the oceans or lands. Mm. Like the ring of fire around the Pacific Rim, which Ashaya is well aware of for Hawaii, mm -hmm. it's called that for the massive amount of volcanoes that are around the edge of the tectonic plate. But if you look at places on the ring of fire, they're some of the most fertile places in the world and there's places where civilization have thrived throughout history. 
but that growth always comes with a cost as you never know when it will be wiped out suddenly, whether you're going to get palm paid or not, basically. It implies that perhaps Valyria has sort of always been this way, that it's like a cyclical civilization where people move in taking advantage of the obvious good parts of Valyria or the land that we know of Valyria, taking advantage of local ecology, the great soil, the protection you get from it. And then they grow, and then eventually they get wiped out by one of the 14 flames blowing up. Mm. Years past, the dead civilization is forgotten, and a new one starts in its place. Like we were talking about with the crabs, where <laughs> things keep evolving into crabs. Maybe there's a constant cycle of civilizations moving into Valyria after another one gets wiped out. Uh, and maybe and maybe you this know, one survived because the magic. They survived longer. Yeah, longer. yeah you're right. Longer, yeah. Maybe there were previous ones. And that's sort of the nature of fire itself, that mm. the change creates growth, that after a wildfire, the forest grows back. But it can also destroy the forest just as easily. And it sucks if you're in the forest before it burns. Yeah. That's a dichotomy that George is playing with, with Valyria. That's really good, too, especially if we, and we relate it to like the north. They settled first around the volcanic spots because it was more, it's more obvious why, because of the heat is necessary. But some of the similar uh, concepts. It's, especially following up in that wildfire example, if everyone didn't get wiped out, those that survive are more likely to thrive and survive next time. They, they're starting at a higher point and mm. know what's coming or maybe even can physically survive it. Like trees have evolved to be more fireproof. Like the grass just burns right away, but the tree barks protect the mm. trees. Yeah. Every tree in a forest, even when massive fires, a lot of times all the trees there, they live through it. They sprout new leaves and new branches or roots are still on the ground. All the trees don't just get destroyed by fire because they've evolved to varying degrees to be impervious to fire. And so maybe the Valerians did too. Maybe oh, one yeah. or some of these races that mm. came in and out, but maybe some volcanoes weren't quite as extreme or the wind blew left instead of right and some made it through. And so the next time it comes, maybe they know the warning signs or maybe the ones that lived were had, I don't know, tougher skin or well, there's also had dragon keep, blood or were about, more magical. Or, I, just, I just keep thinking about the idea, Sean, that you've stumbled on. Of, I wonder, I have to look this up. If anyone's making genetically modified trees that are resistant to fire. No, they, they exist on their own. Yeah, that's uh, what I thought. I mean, like, if they exist on their own, we can pump that up, is my point. Like, you we can, can reinforce, can reinforce that. Infuse it, it, the strongest yeah, ones into other yeah, people. Like, I feel yeah, like yeah. That, that's, it is happening. <laughs> that's I'm neat. Going to look yeah, that up. would be useful for wildfire prevention, right? Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. I'm like, but I'll, I just they, keep uh, thinking about it. But what if the trees turn on us? How will we destroy them? You can't destroy them with water or fire. They're indestructible. There's a specific kind of tree in Yellowstone. I only looked this up. Fire tree. I went there on vacation and they talked about this, that there's a specific kind of tree that lives in the high altitudes that only reproduces when wildfires go through. They won't germinate without a wildfire. Whoa. Yeah. So, oh, how interesting. And, and there's certain uh, pine cones that only release the seeds. Yes, that's exactly fire. what it is. So they ended up with a problem where their forests were dying <laughs> and they didn't know how to get them to repopulate. No new they ones were growing. Until they discovered that <laughs> trying to stop Yellowstone from burning to the ground made the forest die. It it, it was like, no, we've adjusted to this long ago. This is our fire. Let's keep it going. That's like a common part of, I don't know, uh, environmental concern, firefighting techniques is controlled burning. As we look at the far future and the doom of Valyria, one of the theories is that the Valyrians were tampering too much with the volcanoes through magic and that they either lost control of it or too many of the sorcerers were murdered. And they, that, well, same thing. They lost control of it one way or another. And it's very much a metaphor for how volcanoes work. A lot of that pressure gets built up under the crust and then it blows when there's too much of it. And the volcanoes that have 
that that pressure releases more gradually are the ones that are not as dangerous. So if the Valyrians were messing with the volcanoes using magic and it just got out of control, that could A, explain how they were able to not die for a long time if they were able to get it under control. Hey, we control all the eruptions from now on. But eventually that it got over their head. Holding it back got harder and harder and harder (laughs) because the pressure got bigger and bigger and bigger. Something like that. Or they just lost control of it for some other reason. Either way, it fits really well with this concept and these ideas we're discussing. I found the name of the tree. It's called a lodgepole pine. Look them up if you're curious. They're fascinating. That is neat. We've we've discovered a lot of cool trees this year on the podcast. Austin Flowers (laughs) says that the... Something like this was brought up on the expanse, but I don't remember it. Really? They said there's a type of pine that requires fire as part of its life cycle. And that Prax mm-hmm. names the pine tree and they made it the Rossi's call sign for a hot minute. I just don't remember what it was we'll called. Have to look that up. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. cool. One of the points here behind all this is with this fertilization, with the power of volcanoes to actually be life-giving in the short or even longer term, especially with magic involved, with their positioning in the trade network, all these other factors, they probably had a pretty large population, which is not something I think people think about. When you think about Valyria, you think the... 40, yeah, you, 40 families. Yeah, you think about the 40 families, think about like how there's very few Targaryens left. Like These ideas fall apart pretty quickly when you think about how these shouldn't be applied to ancient Valyria, but it is the impression we get that they were a small race ruling a lot of other people. But it seems like they probably could have supported quite a large population of their own in the early days, if not later. And then... As well, we have the equator. They're probably along the equivalent of the equator. It's the lands of always summer. So they could probably grow crops year round, which makes it even more of a boom for them. Yeah, not much of a winner. So you've got some notes on here. You're a gardener yourself, right, Joe? <laughs> I do have a second YouTube channel called Growing Strong, where I, I enjoy growing vegetables and herbs and stuff like that. And as a gardener in the Northeast of the United States, I'm extremely jealous <laughs> of these long growing seasons. But it does limit what they could grow. Cold weather crops generally need seasons to change for them to be able to show up. But basically, they would have had endless supplies of wheat and corn if they wanted it. I know corn comes from North and South America rather than Europe, but he fudges that. He has like potatoes show up and stuff like that, which shouldn't exist. But long story short, they would have all of the cash crops and all of these stuff to make breads and anything like that, all they could ever want. But I do actually question how much of Lyria is actually farmable, especially the cities we're talking about. In artwork George has commissioned of Valeria, it looks like much of the cities were surrounded by volcanoes and lava, like literally flowing through the streets. (laughs) Uh, There's one done by Ted Nasonitz, which shows that, which is just like large dragonstone-like towers surrounded by lava and dragons. That's not really good for growing crops. So uh, Dragonstone as well is basically un- farmable as we know it. And it seems to have been made in the image of the Valyrian strongholds. When you look at how the Targaryens survived, they relied on mostly fishing, and then they demanded tribute from the mainland to give them food. And honestly, that's not that different from, let's say, the Iron Islands, Mm. which is not a good comparison to make for people that like Valyrians. (laughs) It creates class disparity between the dragon lords and their citadels Mm. of fire and stone. And the peasants would be working the fields for them. Dragons plant no trees. But they're servants. And just, yeah. we, we're going like, oh, as lava flows, how fantasy, how, you know, how fantastical in, in, this, in the mm-hmm. streets of Valyria and all that. But again, 
Hawaii has active lava flows that people live yeah. around and this is that's just part of their life. There's no fantastical element of that. Although certainly the artwork, it, it is a little extreme, more extreme than like Hawaiian lava flows. You don't have it going through the streets, right? Yeah, yeah. it's not like going through the streets. <laughs> but and It's not like a regular flow that is continuous, but I, I bet at least once every few years, lava flows down a street in Hawaii. Yeah. And yeah, Hawaii sure. has crops. Hawaii has yeah, You can also imagine that the artwork that will want to be portrayed is the cool, fantastic ones, not mm. like just the farm island. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can imagine there probably are like population centers and castles that are built for dragons to land on and such. Yeah, that was the Manhattan. But there's no, also other that islands. That's what you're saying. Like that was yeah, Manhattan. That's true. Yeah. yeah, that's the Manhattan. You're right. The so, but there are going to be other areas that yeah. are designated for this is where we grow the wheat. This is the apple orchard island or whatever. Away yeah. from the dragon. You know, yeah. over yeah. there. Fruit, you right? outside of New York yeah. City before you get into farmland. Yeah, yeah. You could see uh, a kind of a combination like you got like the very powerful urban center with the big vast farmlands around it potentially something like that but it mm. is true that that valeria is very hilly and mountainous but that's still you can still have farms that as we've seen work around, that. Work around that one more minor point to yeah. make here is that the fishing would be particularly good in that oh, area fantastic. If the ocean was Ooh. so fertilized by all the ash from the volcano absolutely and as a peninsula and all the uh seismic activity would bring up the nutrients yeah. from the ocean floor which would create like reefs and tons and tons of animal life. Okay, so we should consider that the Valyrians are probably, at least some of them, some maybe subgroups, were big fish eaters, seafood mongers. <laughs> uh, the Valarians, especially, hey, right? Hey, hey. There you go. That makes some sense. Sure. Maybe that's what there was. That, that Maybe that's what their role was. They were... Uh, Big in that industry. Yeah, the, tar the Targaryens and Valerians—they were fishmongers. That's why they had their little their their island <laughs> off in the coast. They would go there on fishing trips. Yeah. That's why they were looked down on by the Valerians. They're just fishermen. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're saying. Hey, what's what's wrong with being a fisherman, man? Let's say here. Let's take a little mid-roll uh, jaunt here. And a couple of super chats. Uh, Lizzie of House Darcy says, grateful to have found your podcast. History of Westeros, the most objective channel by far on YouTube. Well, thank you. That's She sounds very objective. <laughs> I don't I think believe her. Called she sounds right to me. Before, so that's cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. And Amy Blackfire, great stream. Thanks for all your hard work. Since the super chat. Appreciate say that, thanks Amy. To Amy for her Mandarin correct. Yes, thank you for that as well. Yeah, I don't have any special messages this time. We've got a lot to cover, so let's just get right back to it, shall we? More on volcanoes, and then we're going to get into Valyrian gods, which, as you'll see, there's probably a relationship there. If I was an uh, ancient prehistoric being living amongst volcanoes, each of which was maybe a little different, had its own qualities and, and temperament and all that, they'd probably have names. You might start to think of them as gods or at least something godlike. I, I simply would not. I'm just built different. <laughs> <laughs> Shea is a natural born atheist. Yeah. Shea, you don't want to be worshipped? No, what? no, I, I wouldn't worship. I wouldn't worship. She would not worship. I wouldn't oh. worship, but no, I would not worship okay, fair the volcano gods. <laughs> but we've got this quote. Very Valyrian of you. <laughs> so that's that's farming um, and food for Valyria. Let's talk about mining. That's something that they're really well known for. Of course, a lot of this is associated with the great evil of slavery. But before they probably had conquered other nations and got deep into slavery, if at all, because we're sort of told that they got that from the Giscari. But regardless of when the origin of slavery in Valyria came, we know that mining was a big deal then. It became a big deal up until the very end. And this tracks with what we know about volcanoes. 
the pressure and all the churning beneath the earth is very good for creating valuable materials. Let's have a quote. Not be the first time that men learned of the working of iron from the Roinar. It is said that the Valyrians learned the art from them as well, although the Valyrians eventually surpassed them. Yeah, talk about, whoops, shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have taught them that. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the Roinar taught the Andals as well, so the Roinar were very open with that secret. Um, yeah, probably not a good idea, but... What did they use before? Maybe obsidian? Obsidian makes a lot of sense. There would have been a lot of it around this. It's, it comes from volcanoes. Maybe bronze as well, if they had access to tin. You need tin to make bronze. Uh, they probably had copper, because copper is often found around volcanoes. The most abundant element on Earth is aluminum. Oh, interesting. How about that? But it's also most difficult to extract. Oh. It's tied up oh. in other elements. That's why, that's why we were quick to want to recycle it, because it's really hard to get it, even though it's very abundant. It's awfully useful. So obsidian is still used by them as an ornament. The Valyrians use it in jewelry and all that, which would make sense. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's plentiful for them. And this is what you're talking about before, Sean, about how you can take a piece of obsidian in modern times and figure out which volcano it came from. So like you said, that tells us a lot about ancient trade and the range of certain populations. And this is something that sounded like fiction to me when George said there's all these different colors of obsidian, like purple. And But there are some wild names for obsidian that occur mm. in natural world, like rainbow obsidian and fire obsidian, silver sheen obsidian, midnight lace. Obsidian. Sounds like a romance it's, novel. Yes, midnight sheen lace. and midnight lace. <laughs> I just want to say... Midnight Lace is a mystery thriller movie from 1960. Boom. <laughs> I have to say, with, with Doris Day. With Doris Day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very nice. Very nice. So yeah, the Mexica, who are more commonly known as the Aztecs, their priests apparently used obsidian mirrors to commune with the different gods or one god in particular. There was, an, there was even like a god of smoke and obsidian or something like that, smoke really cool and creepy sounding. Obsidian is just like an extremely common tool in the Stone Ages and extremely highly prized. So it's great for everything from spears to arrowheads, like we see the children of the forest use it for, knives, axes, everything. It's unsurprising that even if you discount George's magical woo that he introduced, that, mag that obsidian is literally magic in this yeah. world, that cultures worldwide found uses for it and wanted it when they could find it. It was one of the primary things they would trade for. Everybody wanted obsidian because you could shape it into many, many valuable tools. But if you mess it up, you need some new ones. It's, it's a little <laughs> bit too easy to break, especially when you get to fine edges. So it, there's like entire Stone Age civilizations that are based around obsidian trade. The demand is, is high for metals that you don't run out of. So <laughs> you don't keep breaking. So just imagine you know, with obsidian. There's also been a long been a theory that obsidian is part of Valyrian steel. After all, conceptually, mm -hmm. it's so similar. You've got the the flexibility and hardness of steel with the sharpness and lightness of obsidian. So it just seems like a natural idea and throw magic and dragon fire in there and somehow, and blood sacrifice, somehow you get Valyrian <laughs> steel. I don't know. But like I said, it leads to the formation of gems and precious metals, including gold. Of course, we know the Valyrians have a lust for gold. They mine lots of it. Diamonds are one of the, are the most valuable thing that can form directly from volcanoes as far as I understand it. And garnets are a really common one. And garnets, of course, are fit really well with the Valyrian imagery. Not rubies, though. Rubies are not something that form around volcanoes. That's a different whole thing. As you can tell from this discussion, I have a pretty high interest in volcanoes, have most of my life in geology and all that oh, stuff. Nice. So perfect. 
to add on to what you were saying is that gems, almost all gemstones that we know and love come from volcanoes in different forms or tectonic activity, like you were yes. saying. Very, very, very few are naturally occurring near the surface as they require very specific circumstances with particular mixes of minerals, like Sean was saying, with aluminum and everything plus heat and pressure to allow the crystals to form. And nearly everything we have that's near the surface has come from massive, truly massive volcanic activity. A specific type, though, which is not really the uh, kind of Mount Doom-style volcanoes where you think about them where it's like a big mountain and magma shooting out the top. Most of them come from uh, what are called their slow-moving like magma elevators. Oh, magma elevators. It's a bad there, name right there. I know, right? <laughs> there's a big carrot underground, essentially, where there's a magma chamber deep underground, and they just sort of grow upwards to the surface. And that's how we got diamonds. Like, when a volcano erupts, diamonds don't come up. Like, when we think about Tonga, probably did not just distribute diamonds everywhere. <laughs> uh, they, that would be a nice way to... That would be a nice silver line. Yeah, I don't know. I'll pay for the covers. Like, we'll diamonds diamonds to send, <laughs> send Virginia out, and she'll go out and find yeah. a whole bunch, and she'll pick them out of the ground. It's like, that's not how it works. Uh, essentially, there are, like, holes in the ground where there's constant magma upwelling, and they throw out these things called kimberlite. And they're basically, like, big hunks of molten rock. And they essentially what they form is craters, but it's backwards, where the crater is created by the volcano shooting stuff around it in a circle, Whoa. rather than being a, a mountain or a hill that was destroyed. Wow! So it's not from the explosion, but a slow buildup. That's, cool. uh, that's how you get diamonds. That's where all the diamonds in the world have come from. And I think it's unsurprising that George has chosen within the story to make obsidian gemstones have like literally magical properties that they share origins with volcanoes. Like they are the most primal form of fire and like the most powerful force on the planet. Volcanoes and tectonic plates literally shape our life. So if you think of the idea that like gemstones are quote unquote power, like deep underground, there are endless veins of gemstones and rare minerals that we can never access. Think of them in terms of like rivers of diamonds and rubies, bands of them underground, which makes the case that actually they're not rare. Diamonds and other gemstones and like shiny minerals that we like are incredibly common. We can just never get them. But <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you. Are they righteous? Yeah. <laughs> are these Very righteous. righteous gemstones? Extremely righteous. But it makes sense when you think about the Valyrians, their obsession with digging down to volcanoes to get them. Uh, it's to get to the source. It works with their power. Mm. It all works in like one geologic thing. It's like, oh, George must pay attention in geology class when he was a kid or in yeah. college or something. I'm just curious, Joe. Have, have you read the Broken Earth trilogy? Just a random aside. I've read the first okay, one. Just... And yeah, that's a big yeah. part of it. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah, there's just a oh, lot yeah. of geology stuff. That's a huge part. I mean, the Broken Earth, that's literally the title of the series. So yeah, obviously yeah. it's about a broken earth. And yeah, without spoiling it some, but it seems like you would have liked it. I guess you didn't continue though. I do that series. It's a good series. Yeah. I just I like to think about in terms of you think of the earth going down to the core and it's just like a bunch of rock basically. But instead there's all there's like layers of gemstones mm. and like layers of a weird egg of or a different a onion. So, so like basically of, like when people are like, minerals. oh, he was he was he was lower than dirt. <laughs> you're it's calling you a yeah. gem. Saying you're, you're <laughs> a right. diamond. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Most valuable things we can find. Lower come from than low. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a good way to turn that one around i like that judo insult no that's that's a compliment thank you very much you guys are welcome for the gem tangent i hope you enjoyed i that did knowledge. enjoy that gem tangent <laughs> i hope the rest of you did as well it's very informative and very cool it's a really neat subject what's that <gasps> oh there we go nice good said here's another quote 
Burning mountains of the 14 flames were rich with ore, and the Valyrians hungered for it. Copper and tin for the bronze of their weapons and monuments, later iron for the steel of their legendary blades, and always gold and silver to pay for it all. I guess I answered my own question there. It says they did have tin there, so right on. There you go. <laughs> I forgot about ahead. that one. In modern times, volcanoes are used to provide electricity through geothermal energy. More and more nations are tapping into that. There's some that do it quite a lot, like Iceland. I guess we're going to be seeing more of it in the future. Uh, so it seems interesting or neat or appropriate to gauge that that's what the Valyrians were doing in a magical version of. They were tapping into the power, quote-unquote, of volcanoes in a lot yeah. of different ways fire magic, like water magic or ice magic or... Yeah, it's just along that same vein. Now, the, the 14 flames, like I said a minute vein. ago... Vein. <laughs> yeah. Pun intended. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the 14 flames probably each had names, maybe several names, different nicknames based on who lived there and, and different like historians or geologists or different eras where they would have gotten behaved differently and different things popping out of them or you know, like they would have different personalities in a set, in essence. Like you, I can picture like a, a 15th flame long ago, which collapsed or something, because that does happen occasionally. A volcano can turn into a, a caldera, which is when it exhausts all its magma, then just collapses in on itself. Mm-hmm. And if that fills with water, it's, it can be a caldera lake, which is like a crater lake, Oregon, which is the deepest freshwater lake in North America. Imagine the myth cycles of a collapsed volcano that turned into a lake, right? There would Their stories would be amazing. Uh, let George handle something like that. That's not for me. But I can come up with the idea anyway. <laughs> it sounds really cool, especially if that lake is like some Valyrian settled around early on, like this life-giving lake that, yeah, that's kind of cool. Or the God's Eye. Ooh, yeah, something like that. God's Eye, nice deep. That's a good one. Just saying. Just saying. Also, the idea of like a god of fire and the god of the volcanoes, that's pretty common. I, I have a tinfoil that I think R'hllor is a Valyrian god or inspired by it. Since it seems to be so common among Valyrian slaves who were at the time mostly shoved into the volcanoes to, to extract minerals and stuff like that, it seems like it, it just like fits logically that R'hllor is this kind of one of the offshoots of some Valyrian religion that has sort of limped on like the rest of the Valyrian daughters with its origins lost to the flames, basically. Mm, I like that. That is pretty cool. And we it, it also fits with what we know about how some religions did form in Valyria only to hate the religious freedom because they thought their religion was the only true. Yeah. So they went somewhere where they could make it the only religion. And this, this R'hllor could be an example of that. Some religions might have been lost in the flames, but R'hllor was found oh. in the flames. <laughs> there you go. I mean, you think about the the iconography of a flaming heart. Doesn't that just sound like the sigil of Valeria? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It does. Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> so that's a good segue to, to talk about gods of Valeria and, and and what we know about worship in the ancient world. It makes sense that their religious association includes fire and flame and other things associated with volcanoes. But the dragons too are personified as gods. They're given that quality. And here is a quote that Sean's going to read right in line with that. Aegon's dragons were named for the gods of old Valeria, she told her blood riders one morning after a long night's journey. Asenia's dragon was Vagar, Rhaenys had Meraxes, and Aegon rode Valerian, the Black Dread. It is said that Vagar's breath was so hot that it could melt, an arm, melt a knight's armor and cook the man inside, that Meraxes swallowed a horse's hole, and Valerian... His fire was as black as the scales, his wings so vast that whole towns were swallowed up in their shadow when he passed overhead. And sometimes we look at gods as just something that's just, it isn't necessarily 
a designation that it's a deity. It's just God because it has so much more power. It's just so much more vast than you are. And this really made me think just the idea of the wings swallowing up the shadow made me think of like the the ash of a volcano oh, coming yeah. across the town. You could go on on with all the, the parallels to her description. Of How the much sun there. did they get in Valyria with all these dragons driving, flying over them? <laughs> all the ash. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they were so pale. <laughs> that's a good thing. It was a lot sunlight along. Yeah, like, for example, there's a volcano in Ecuador called the Black Giant. And, well, that that oh. sounds like, you know, they lived in the shadow of oh, the Black Giant. Yeah, you yeah. know, whoa. So, yeah, that sounds similar. It's straight from Earth. I definitely have tinfoil that the shadow by a shy is volcanoes continually erupting. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, sounds like right. With I this. agree with that. Yeah, you maybe know. with magical yeah. something mixed in there. <laughs> but can you just picture that? People like... Uh, Black Giant's angry today. It's like rumbling a little more, or a little extra of steam is belching out of it or something like that. Actually, how, what was your, did you have a relationship like that to the volcanoes, Ashaya? Did you guys think about the different volcanoes and their names? Yeah, I mean, they have names. Like, it's like Mount Aloha and Mount Akai. Like, they have names, but I wasn't like, no, I did not personify, I did not personify the volcano <laughs> that's, myself. That's I'm not that type of person. The farther I, like, back I ago. guarantee she you. Yeah, I guarantee you that people do that. A hundred percent people do that. I am not people. <laughs> sure. She is a dragon. She is something else. <laughs> of course, and if the, again, with the volcanoes being so central to... Valyrian life and upbringing and, and enabling their existence in the first place, especially if there's also dragons that come from there and live there and they associate all that together. Of course, it's going to fit into their worship and myth cycle and all that. I was very happy Sean just said that because this is exactly what I wanted to say. Sean, mind meld going on here. <laughs> Thinking ahead. Yes. Uh, you know, dragon volcanoes share tons of similar traits, especially within A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. Like you get the idea that they tend to rest a lot, that the, like the volcanoes are sleeping or they're dormant. The, the wild dragons tend to be pretty lazy. They hang out eating sheep all the time in their caves and they're fishing. <laughs> but then they can be extremely unpredictable and in a rage or an eruption, they can destroy an entire region or a town or a city in a matter of minutes. And the associations that you get, particularly with the Lord of the Rings, like Smog, with his obsession with gold and gems, works too here that the associations of dragons and gold and gemstones are very similar to volcanoes because that's where they come from. Mm. The two are linked in that way. So you can imagine the idea that if you think of a volcano as a dragon, well, the volcano is hoarding the wealth in the same way that a dragon would. Mm -hmm. You just have to be brave enough to seek it, like the Valyrians digging down to go get it. That's a great man. And the idea of of uh, taming volcanoes and dragons are basically the same thing. Like the Valyrians, conceptually, what they're doing is the exact same thing. You, d- you just can't ride a volcano, but I guess your civilization could if you could stop them from exploding. Yeah. You know, the, the dragons are the embodiment of volcanoes. And it's unsurprising once you look at Tolkien's dragons and many in history and myth that they preferred caves and mountains that are full of gems and precious <laughs> minerals. It's a long-term association between the two of them that they are old volcanoes. That's like, when you look at the Lonely Mountain in Lord of the Rings, the fact that it's filled with gems and gold and stuff like that tells you that it was a volcanic mountain and not a tectonic one. And it makes you wonder, what were the names of the 14 flames? Were they the same as the dragon gods? What if they were the same thing? What if there was a mountain Balerion and then a Balerion also? You know, in the chat, we got a suggestion from Edward Says, from Ed on on what the 14 flames were named. (laughs) Walder? 
Big Walder, Little Walder, yeah. Black Walder, Blue Walder, Hot Walder, Ashy Walder, Perfect. Copper Walder. Yeah. <laughs> Giant Walder. That's, That's amazing. I think it'd be interesting if there was like what the 14 flames were all named Meraxes and they were named and all these other things. It's, that'd be cool if George conceptualized that, that that way. And it would make sense with how he describes them to be basically the same thing. Balerion, he was talking about, Sean, with the wings being the same as Ash. They are the same thing. Hmm. just described a little bit differently. One's alive and one's a big mountain. But and George uses that metaphor of sh shadow a lot in a lot of different ways because, of course, <laughs> shadow is a word that has so many different ways to use, be used. So it's a, it's a good word for that. But yeah, shadow of the wings, shadow of the bloodline, shadow of the hi shadow of history, shadow of your, your ancestors, shadow of the past beneath the shadow, I that kind of, all these things, yeah. A shy by the dragons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's another quote, a very a, a single sentence quote that also builds on this idea. Dragon names and more. In old Valeria before the doom, Valerian, Raxes, and Vagar had been gods. Yeah, like this volcano god name is a, a good theory. And I want to shout out our Valerian episode where we discussed the, the idea that something's a little peculiar about Valerian being named after a god, which is Valerian was named after a god in Valyria, when there were hundreds of dragons, mm. Meraxes and Vagar were patched on Dragonstone when there was only when they were among the few dragons in the entire world. So I think it's more significant that Valerian got that name, and that's something we explore in that episode. I'm gonna name my cat be. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that happens all the time. People name does. their their kids after saints. I mean, it's no different. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Zeus, is it coming? That is, yeah. but I still think naming my cat Jesus is a little weirder than naming my child that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I'm named, I'm named Matthew, named after one of the apostles of Jesus. It doesn't feel right because it's not a part of our culture, but once it is, it would be totally normal. Yeah. And I'm Abishai, which wasn't an apostle, but it is a biblical name. So it's just like, oh yeah, that's another, yet another, <laughs> so many of those names. Religious names are super, super yeah. common, even among the non-religious. <laughs> With the Freehold's attitudes towards freedom, though, we have these Valyrian gods, but over time, as the Valyrians maybe incorporated more of the outside world, maybe more of this was a aspect of when they were in their imperial era, but... I'm in my imperial era. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but basically... When you're allowed to do anything, when you have this freehold attitude, including you can enslave whoever you want, that obviously is going to include a lot of different versions of religions, a lot of different gods. And here's a fantastic quote that seeks to explain some of that. Many Valyrians worshipped more than one god, turning to different deities according to their needs. More, it is said, worshipped none at all. Most regarded freedom of faith as a hallmark of any truly advanced civilization. Yet to some, this plethora of gods was a source of continuing grievance. The man who honors all the gods honors none at all, a prophet of the Lord of Light, Rolor the Red, once famously declared. Mm. And even at the height of its glory, the freehold was home to many who believed fiercely in their own particular god or goddess and regarded all others as false idols, frauds, or demons bent on deceiving mankind. Dozens of such sects flourished in Valyria, sometimes quarreling violently with one another. Inevitably, some found the tolerance of the freehold to be intolerable and set out into the wilderness to found cities of their own, godly cities where only the true faith would be practiced. 
similar to how it began in Westeros. Like it began one way, the gods of the first men, and then it expanded and they, they adopted the local gods and then the faith came in. And it, it just, these things follow a wide variety of patterns. The, the tracing of religion in our own real world is a very complicated thing. Here, it's really interesting because of the extreme tolerance, which as we see <laughs> leads to forms of intolerance paradoxically, but, but in ways that make sense to us. Sounds like what would happen. Like when he, when that quote rings reasonable to me, it sounds like how it would play out, even if uh, without specific details. What do you think about that, uh, Joe Magician? What's your take on the uh, the widespread religious tolerance here? Well, it is it is interesting that at least in modern society, there is a definite trend towards the more educated a population becomes, the less religious it becomes. That's sort of been a long term thing. Uh, throughout history, like the amount of people that are identifying as religious, especially in America and stuff like that, has been on a downswing for quite a long mm-hmm. time. To the point where agnostics and atheists are almost are coming. I'm not. I don't think they're a majority, but they are getting close. Which is a wild thing when you think about world history. Yeah. And it kind of it's here that George is playing on that with Valeria. That like they grew so far, they advanced so much that they just sort of stopped believing in them, or they stopped seeing the the purpose in them. Like. Why do I need a God to do something when I can form lava with my hand into a road? <laughs> it takes away the things that you need the, the quote unquote gods for in a lot of these senses, even though we know magic is real. And a side note on that, we're talking about the Valyrian colonies and in terms of the religious one, Kohor is one of the religious colonies called the City of Sorcerers. Mm. And they also are one of the only places in the world that still knows how to rework Valyrian steel. And their religion mm. is based around this black goat that they make constant blood sacrifices to. Boy, I wonder if that's a clue to how you make Valyrian yes, steel. Yes, multiple Somehow the ones there. Yes. Yeah, there's something about blood magic that has <laughs> yeah. to do with making Valyrian steel. Mm. Clever, George. Very cool. Yeah, that's a good catch there. Good dot connecting there for sure. As well, it's interesting too that these ideas would be captured or, or held onto or contained uh, unlike some of these other things, which... For example, the religious stuff is wide open, but Valyrian steel is a, a state secret, at least at least in Kohor. I'm not sure how Valyria treated it, but they probably treated it as a pretty big secret too. Or maybe they didn't because no one could duplicate it. You know, if you, if you need a dragon to make Valyrian steel or massive amounts of slaves, well, then they're, they're not worried about other people doing that because who's going to do that? But there's a couple of possibilities here. Let's put it that way. Stannis. Stannis <laughs> and as well with the gods, you're right. Thinking about Euron, for example, Euron's belief in gods is, is rooted in the fact that he tested them multiple times and they never did anything. He did all these things that you're not supposed to do, that the gods are supposed to hate. And there was never any consequence. And I imagine a lot of the Valyrians saw it the same way. They just kept doing stuff and there was no punishment for it. They can look at the history of their culture and be like, yeah, we've been enslaving people for thousands of years. We broke every religious law we could think of and nothing yeah, ever happens. Yeah, no consequence. Right. So they just keep going. And, and that's part of why, coming back to Euron, it, it's been said by a lot of people around the fandom that well, a lot of what Euron is doing is trying to, is restoring something that's a lot like the Valyrian freehold. His his attitude is yeah, very he wants, similar. He wants to be a Valyrian sorcerer. Yeah. He's wearing Valyrian uh, chain armor. He's got the dragon horn. He claims to have gone there. Basically, all of his power and all the things he brags about are Valyrian based. Yeah. Even the dragon egg where he's, oh, I tossed it away. That's actually making fun of the Valyrians. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm Euron. I'm so cool. I don't even need your stupid eggs. I'm better than your it's eggs. Like a power move. Yeah. Like, uh, 
yeah. dragon eggs. I got plenty of stuff like this. <laughs> I can afford. To- I can go get another one in Valeria whenever I feel like yeah. it. you're on great joy. Nina writes, it may have been hard for Valyrians, specifically the dragon lords, maybe not the lower ranking ones, but the dragon lords specifically to consider themselves subservient to gods, even if they believed in them. Yeah, like I, they could see themselves as gods. They're so far above everyone else. If you have the supernatural power to, like you said, control shape lava in your hand or with your dragon or control massive fire breathing monsters that are the equivalent of nukes or actually control the 14 flames, which there's a, a lot of circumstantial evidence and statements regarding that possibility, uh, then yeah, that's going to go to your head. And so if, uh, they can justify a lot of their atrocities with that, like saying, well, real gods do this sort of thing. Their conception of what gods are able to do and, and can do. Yeah, gods can do whimsical things like we talked about this a few weeks ago with Zeus. Like Zeus just does whatever the hell he wants. He's the total like abusive father. Right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, totally. so a lot of gods are you know, just that's how they're seen. Right. I wonder if it's possible, a lot of speculation here, but I wonder if it's possible that that's something the Valerians figured out to control the volcanoes is what these mines were. They were mm. like redirecting lava underground. Oh, yeah. And at the sacrifice of human life, which A, might we need their blood to make our steel anyway. So send them down there to do this deadly work till they die and use their blood in our forging. And maybe important to keep all this secret because if people know that when they become enslaved by them, they'll end up dying, they'll fight harder to resist being enslaved. And they might even justify some of what they're doing. Look, we're saving the world by stopping these volcanoes from going off. So, you know, we're not going to stop. And I could see all... All sorts of angle. They feel godlike, controlling the powers of the mm. earth by doing this and etc. Right on. I can totally imagine like a Valyrian freeholder, one of the like an archon or saying, sure, we sh- we could stop slaving, but what would the world be like without the light of Valyria? <sighs> it would fall into nothing. We have to keep this going. We're the best ones mm. in the world. We're the civilization. Yeah, they could really definitely talk themselves into that. Yeah. And it would only take a few voices like that to bring kind of people on the fence who hadn't really thought about that. It'd be like, yeah, I like, like this. Even someone the alternative would be was, worse. Yeah, even like someone who thought it was terrible, what they're, wait, we're enslaving these people and sending them to their death? Yeah, but it stops the volcanoes from going off. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, I guess, I don't know. Well, we could, until we find out some different way to handle it, I guess we'll keep doing this. You mm-hmm. know? Don't tell anyone in the meantime. Yeah, that that rings like a reasonable scenario there, Sean. Good said. Okay, let's talk about the look, the Valyrian look. It's certainly one of the things that's a little unusual about them that stands out. Hey, she's got the look. He's got it too. Uh, (laughs) Sean, how about you read this quote? The great beauty of the Valyrians with their hair of palest silver or gold and eyes and shades of purple not found amongst any other peoples of the world is well known and often held up as proof that the Valyrians are not entirely of the same blood as other men. Yet there are maesters who point out that by careful breeding of animals, one can achieve a desirable result, and that populations in isolation can often show quite remarkable variations from what might be regarded as common. This may be a likelier answer to the mystery of the Valerian origins, although it does not explain the affinity with dragons that those with the blood of the Valeria clearly had. A couple of things are going on here. One, 
there's a bit of an in-joke here about inbreeding, right? About the, the, the maesters like inbreeding animals. Maybe they aren't so great after all. Maybe this is just the same thing as when you have a, a small isolated population of, I don't know. Well, let's look at the case of these lemurs, this species of lemur. Let's jump to that quote. <laughs> I love these dudes. I love lemurs in general. These sound great. A species of lemur, a creature known from the summer isles and Sothorios, but otherwise rarely seen farther north. These lemurs are said to have silver white fur and purple eyes and are sometimes called little valerians. <laughs> and these are found in the forest of Kohor only. So that's interesting, right? George is, yeah, they do look really good, you know, ba- based on these standards, but also <laughs> they might just be this product of, of inbreeding, which is quite an unhealthy. Nina points out that John Aaron seems to have observed when he's trying to figure out the, the when the question of, the Robert's children is on the center, taking center stage in the books is John Aaron had been taking a great interest in the breeding of hunting hounds, which is, <laughs> so it's his way of studying genetics and that is following in those same footsteps. And that's what we're doing here. By the way, on the subject of the, tar- the, tar- the Targaryens and the Valyrians being evil in their origin, and it's okay to not hedge on that and, and straight up call a lot of this evil is we have some new transcription software and it registered the, the word Targaryen as target Aryan, <laughs> like Aryans, right. like, as in the white supremacists. <laughs> so we're like, whoa, that's right on their description or just transcription software. That's a little too on the nose. But let's hear yeah. from you, Joe Magician, on this now. <laughs> so it's definitely true that the Valerians practiced hardcore eugenics, yeah. like <laughs> Crusader Kings players <laughs> levels of eugenics. That's what they were going for. <laughs> and that's honestly one of their greatest superpowers is that despite their intense inbreeding, they did not end up with Habsburg chins yeah. or they did not end up with horrible genetic diseases. They seem to be relatively fine. And I think that's one of the things that, again, ties them back to Lord of the Rings and the elves. The elves are a relatively insular population and there's not really a huge amount of them, mm. especially at the very top. And yet they seem to marry each other and have tons of kids with no problems. I think that's George kind of riffing on that idea. It's also worth noting that oh, it's it's hard to separate the idea of the Targaryen families or even the 40 families from the entire population of Valeria, right? We mm-hmm. talked about that earlier. It's actually probably a really big population. Even if they're isolated, it's still not like they're everyone's marrying their cousin. You still have a huge population to draw from. It's not like everyone in Africa or China is all inbreeding with each other, even though they right. have distinct physical characteristics different from everyone in France or Afghanistan or something like that. It's still a massive population. So it makes sense that Eandel or whoever might want to take a jab at the inbreeding of Targaryens, but it might be a little bit narrow-minded to think of it that way. It's pro- yeah, it's probably just magical, the reason that they can do it and they get away with Shango's it. Sean yeah. goes, not that's, all Valyrians. Not, not all Valyrians. Not all Valyrians. It doesn't seem like the Valarians married their siblings, so it's probably just a 40 family thing. Yeah, right? no, I agree. Yeah, it does seem that way. It, it sound, it's, they make it sound like it was common for the Dragon Rider families, and, and it's implied that it's not so much elsewhere. Even when you have isolated populations like Madagascar has evolved a lot separately from the rest of the species that are there since they're on an island, evolved separately from species around the world. Lemurs specifically, 14 different species of lemurs on Madagascar, huge variety within them too. Mm. Probably the same is true of valerians. We're probably just thinking about 
the, the ones that we know best, yeah, right? right. Uh, the ones, ones that, that survive. East side Valerians yeah, and yeah. the West side Valerians. <laughs> <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> but oh. yeah, anyway, you can still have a range within what the skin color be or the shape of the nose, even if they all have purple eyes or something. Sure, like okay, that. yeah, that makes sense. Here's this quote that helps explain some of what we're talking about here. She had always assumed that she would wed Viserys when she came of age. For centuries, the Targaryens had married brother to sister since Aegon the Conqueror had taken his sisters to bride. The line must be kept pure, Viserys had told her a thousand times. Theirs was the king's blood, the golden blood of old Valyria, the blood of the dragon. Dragons did not mate with the beasts of the field, and Targaryens did not mingle their blood with that of lesser men. Yet now... Viserys schemed to sell her to a stranger, a barbarian. Notice that Viserys doesn't <laughs> teach her why. It's just like, yeah, this is what we do. He he makes it a point of superiority, whereas in the past it was it was a point of power. It was to maintain their hold over dragon bonding. At least that seems to be the case. That's a theory. Yeah, it's a theory. It's there's some pretty good supporting evidence for it, but it isn't certainly nowhere close to a hundred percent. In line with that, we have to wonder, like you said, it could be magical. There could be magical alteration to their own genetics. And there's evidence of that with the higher, the super highborn Valyrians because of the lack of disease, the extra disease resistance, the extra heat resistance, possibly the actual bonding with dragons. But I'm a little skeptical that their look has anything to do with this. Nina suggests here that the lemurs, the little Valyrian lemurs might be like a an example of a luxury item from their mm. genetic experimentation, like a really high, like a super rich person wants a pet that looks like them, like people that get like the super fancy <laughs> poodles that have the hairstyle that kind of makes them look like each other. And yeah, like that kind of luxury animal, that kind of thing. We know they were doing lots of genetic experiments. We know they were building things like sphinxes and maybe even the dragons themselves. So yeah, this, this fits pretty well. It's the, Flesh pits, is that what yeah. they were called? So it's not a big stretch to assume they did some of that on themselves, right? It's made that a constant plot point in the Thousand Worlds that these super advanced civilizations like Avalon people and the Prometheans, their big thing is that they're super advanced and they use all of that for genetic enhancement so that there's like different species of men. Mm -hmm. They're like the advanced men. And then there are some that are like bred for war and stuff like that. So the idea that George would think of an idea where the aristocracy of Illyria would take to genetic experiments to amuse themselves is totally in line with his writing. Or to expand on their power, just to expand their, like, I, if I can live longer or make myself stronger or healthier, then I, I can exert my power even more. A lot of, a lot of it just goes straight to, to power and holding on to power. Yeah, that's a really good call. A lot of times this genetic stuff gets spun in a negative way. There are ways it could be abused or, or rich people are going to get to use it first or on and on. But the fact is, if we could genetically alter ourselves to be immune to cancer... Yeah, we would do that. We should do yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You're like, right, you're right. If we're just doing it because we want to be like, I don't know, more blonde or, or a way to exclude poor people who can't afford to have it done, if we if it becomes like a test of whether you get into a school that you were genetically enhanced to have a better IQ, that you could see bad things could come from it. But good things could come from it. You're right. And that's a great point, Sean, because this is, a, this is an example of why we can very confidently call this so evil, because they didn't do those things, as far as we know. I mean, maybe... And they made like nightmare monsters to amuse yeah. themselves. That's not a rule. That's yeah. not a good use. Yeah, that's not, they, weren't, they weren't solving the world's problems. They were creating new problems, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so here's another example that, that both involves 
magic and breeding and sparks the imagination even further as to what was possible with them. This practice went back to old Valeria, where it was common amongst many of the ancient families, particularly those who bred and rode dragons. The blood of the dragon must remain pure, the wisdom went. Some of the sorcerer princes also took more than one wife when it pleased them though this was less common than incestuous marriage. Which is interesting, right? Polygamy less common than incest. <laughs> like, that seems odd, right? Ease. <laughs> really yeah. makes Aegon seem extra. Convenience, okay. Convenience yeah. and ease, that's why I say. Yeah. Boy, Aegon, was, he's burying the needle. He did both. <laughs> <laughs> that's true you really dare he <laughs> yeah it is it, that's a, a good point actually to, to uh, clarify that what Aegon did was not common it maybe sounds like it would be but yeah it wasn't um, he went pretty far it also works in a um, in an interesting way for the Valyrians and what they were doing George puts in all these examples and all these thoughts about like how staying pure helps with the dragon bond and it makes the dragon lords better. But then he also introduces tons of counter examples like the strong boys mm. in particular stick out as well as the dragon seeds where most of them are only on one side Targaryen, but they still are able to ride dragons. Mm. And so it, it really questions the idea of how useful it is, especially if the Targaryen kings are running around having bastards and all of a sudden they can just sort of hop on a dragon like it's nothing despite being mixed with lowborns. Yeah, I imagine, so. it, I, not to give credence to the, their thoughts, but just the, the idea that if you're full, then you have a 100% chance of taming your dragon. If you are half, mm. then you have 80% chance of taming your dragon. Mm. If you're a quarter, you have 75%. Like, it's still, like, really high. Even mm. if you were, Perhaps. say, like, a tiny little droplet, maybe it was still 50%, but that's not good enough. They need, You need to be guaranteed to tame your dragon. Interesting. But yeah. I also, like, were there failed Targaryens? Uh, you know, We've never to, seen a Targaryen yeah, we fail. Yeah, we haven't seen them fail. To, to get uh, a dragon. Vagon? Didn't, Vagon didn't even try, did he? No, he didn't try, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, not fail. I mean, never uh, be harmed by one directly enduring the act of trying to tame it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Oh, there was not a single okay. Targaryen that was even injured during trying to tame a, an untamed dragon. Mostly the eggs wouldn't hatch if I yeah, remember yeah. right. If it didn't work. Yeah, exactly. Like Aemon lost his eye, but that was his, his brother, not, not the dragon. Yeah, so that's interesting. It is like you add all that. So that's a kind of an under the radar clue. I know we've mentioned that before, but this is a good time to bring that up. That's more evidence that there's something magical going on. And that's why I wanted to relate this to the look because I, I do think the look is unrelated because think about this. There aren't any purple dragons and I don't even know of a dragon with purple eyes. So that doesn't really seem to be a related thing, right? Like it doesn't seem like you can draw a line from one. It's like, ah, they have that same coloring. No, it doesn't. I don't think so. Silver gold hair. Uh, not many dragons are really that color either. Meraxes has is silver scaled with golden eyes. So that's that one fits. But that's basically it. Sunfire is golden, but with like pink as its other color. Mostly they're basic colors like black, red, green, blue. <laughs> but again, there's definitely magic going on here. Um, so I'm just saying that I don't think it's a reason for their look. But it is affecting their heat resistance, disease resistance. And of course, the biggest evidence that there's dragon blood flowing through their veins, in my opinion, is that dragon babies like Rago, Magor's kids, Rhaenyra's Visenya. Babies with scales and wings is just really, you can't, it's really hard to pass that off as anything else. Something, something weird going yeah, on. Yeah, what else can you call that? <laughs> like it's just too on the nose. Scale, it's, wings. It's a very strange birth effect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if the silver hair gives you dragons, where's my dragon? Yeah, I'm waiting for yes. guys. <laughs> now y'all can see, those of you watching on YouTube, or if you know what Joe Magician looks like, this is part of why we invited him. He is the most Valyrian looking <laughs> 
that we can find. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, like, again, the Strogs, not only are they half, well, obviously they're, um, they're half Breakbones, uh, so they're half Strong, half Targaryen. None of them look Targaryen. They all look like Breakbones. Oh, so yeah. clearly, you don't have to look Targaryen to ride one. It's, if it's genetic, it has nothing to do with the appearance. That's true. That's a very good point. I like that. That's a great take. Logical thinking. Yeah. Wow, got <laughs> Okay, well, let's do one more section and we'll call it a day. We have a couple things that we won't get to. We'll maybe get to them some other time. But let's talk uh, about Valyrian government. Here is, of course, this is like a lot of the topics on Valyria. We have to throw the caveat, which is Valyria is a really long period of time. It existed for a long length of time. We don't know that this is how the government has always been. We don't know necessarily what period this stretches through. Maybe this was part of their era and not the whole thing, but we work with what we got. And here we go. Here's a quote. The Valerians had no kings, but instead called themselves the freehold because all the citizenry who held land had a voice. Archons might be chosen to help lead, but they were elected by the Lord's freeholder from amongst their number and only for a limited time. It was rare for Valeria to be swayed by one freeholding family alone, although it was not entirely unknown either. Basically, that's what we said earlier. Like you have this group of rich and powerful people, extremely rich and powerful people who can do much, do as much as they want, as long as they don't interfere too much with the other rich and powerful people. If you're interfering with people at a lower level, fine. But just leave the other 40 family member, 39 families alone. And this is, this is where you can really see evidence of this. They choose these archons, but these it sounds like these archons don't have that much power. Like they may have some power, maybe like a not as much powerful as a Roman, like those temporary Roman dictators had, not even that much power. And I don't know, it, it, there's not, religion isn't that involved here in terms of their, the governance directly. So religion was, was seems like it was like a side piece mostly. But yeah, that, let's get your response here. One thing about the, the culture of the freehold that I find really fascinating related to the idea that they basically like were allowed to do whatever they want as long as they didn't mess with anybody is I was reading The World of Ice and Fire last night and I came across, you guys are going to cover this in a different episode, but the uh, the war with, Ro- with the Roinar. Mm. And in particular, there's a particular sentence that was fascinating to me. So it said that Garen the Great first drew up an army and he went and sacked a city, yeah. right? And he beat the Valyrian army, which is strange. Why weren't there dragon lords there? And then the follow-up is he, he gathered his army again and then he attacked another city. And then the, the, the troop numbers on the other side were now 100,000 Valyrian soldiers, but three dragon riders. Three. Yeah. So it kind of... It makes the case that the Valyrians, the way they seem to play with genetics and magic seems to be the same way they dealt with warfare, mm. that they sort of viewed it as like a, a fun thing, that it was like yeah. a pastime for them to, to game, wage game war. Thrones, yeah. it, it's a game for them that they like it's Savas basically, but with real people since they valued human life so low. The idea that when Garen was a threat, then they deployed the dragon riders and only three of them tells you that anytime they could knock over basically anyone they wanted, they chose not to. They were choosing not to keep conquering. They enjoyed having a, a wars to fight and they enjoyed watching the soldiers fight each other in a very, very like video game kind of very way. And I think much, that's fascinating yeah. when you think about the Valyrians and how they related to the rest of the world because I was thinking about their conquests and how the 40 families worked. Why didn't they conquer more? Why did they stop where they did? Because in like thousands of years, they only conquered landmass that is barely bigger than Westeros. The answer is they liked having enemies. They liked having wars to fight. Like, why did they fight the Giscari six times 
when clearly they could have won in one war if they'd sent out all their dragon riders. Mm. They didn't want to. They enjoyed it. Yeah. Some of the other members of the Freehold probably when the wars against the Giscard were happening, probably just like, eh, I don't feel like it today. I'm not going to bother. And yeah. what would make them and, and what would force them otherwise? That's the attitude they seem to have here is they get to do what they want. They tend to have this attitude of they'll take action that helps them maintain power, uh, keep this <clears throat> elite group alive. But other than that, anything else goes. And it's also probably tons of infighting, yeah. like nonstop fighting between the dragon lords. But one of the reasons that the faceless men are so rich is because they kept taking contracts to kill dragon yeah. lords. <laughs> They're constantly being paid to kill each other. So that just tells you that I did an episode last week, I think, about the Blackwoods. And I was talking about the Blackwoods and the Brackens. And in particular, that the one time they teamed up under Benedict, Benedict Justman, they conquered all the riverlands in one go. And it probably is the same thing with Valeria, that all the Fori families are in such deep conflicts with each other over the long term that they just basically couldn't get their act together at a certain point. Three houses would, three houses would go to conquer Kohor and the other 37 would sit on their heels and say, yeah, whatever, I don't care what you're doing. Or they would block each other. That had to be like the chess of like where to deploy, where to deploy the dragons and how they were fighting for the different parts of Essos, that kind of oh, thing. Yeah. I got to throw out some, some, some possible counters to your thoughts there, Joe, that oh. Oh. <laughs> maybe they just weren't ambitious, oh, right? Cool. The children seemed yeah. to have a lot of power, but didn't go taking over everything, for example. Mm -hmm. Maybe even if they were, they were too split, like you said, that maybe the mm -hmm. infighting kept them like from infighting, organizing yeah. an assault on another Or they place. wouldn't want, yeah. Or even a defense, yeah. right? They don't want to see this other uh, house gain power. Like, oh, if we do attack here, House Johnson's going to be really powerful now, and they're our enemy. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's yeah. a, real, uh, a reasonable guess at a Valyrian name, I think, Johnson, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, yeah Johnson, totally. You know. <laughs> and and it also could easily just be three or four central dragon rider families who, like you said, maybe enjoy playing at war, mm. who keep the others at bay from uh, you know, completely conquering everyone. Or I, I, anyway, I can just see a myriad of reasons it might evolve over time and not simply all Valerians want to use humans as pawns in their games of war. It might not be that. So. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's a little yeah, of both. Definitely probably. factions. Yeah, a little for both. sure. I mean, a good, a good example of what you're saying, Sean, is that Aegon the Conqueror conquered Westeros, but the Targaryens were on Dragonstone for 100 years before that without them doing that. Yeah. I mean, part of that is the circumstances. They didn't have nearly the power they had before. But the other thing is, I think it just things aligned for, for Aegon. Like, he had Valerian. Like, that by itself is... a a huge difference. <laughs> but in the same vein, they had three dragons and they knocked over Westeros in less than a year. Yeah. The 40 families had hundreds of dragons and yeah. they sort of stopped at a certain yeah. point. So, right. And they might have been more concerned with holding back the volcanoes. Wonder, like, we don't have time yeah. to go waging and conquering. We're trying to save the world by keeping these volcanoes. And I wonder how erupting. many times they might have conquered something and be like, this is not worth holding. Like yeah. I, I, we we can, we've overextended ourselves. Like, yeah, we just, let's let's go away now. And so there are lots of they areas like maybe they, they conquered all of Essos at one point. Yeah. Obviously not, but like they just gave it up. Like, why does a really powerful dragon rider family that owns a lot of mines around Valyria? Why the hell do they need to like worry about going elsewhere? There's so yeah, much just why? everything. Yeah, besides getting more slaves, they can yeah. probably buy. But you're right; they might want to just cut out the middleman and go do that themselves or something. But yeah. Mm -hmm. 
they might also truly love their dragons and okay. don't want to use them as tools of war. They don't want to expose them to danger, yeah. etc. Yeah, they're you know? right. They, yeah. they might have, have not yeah. wanted to do like their dragons will die. You don't want to risk that because yeah. then you lose your power. Most yeah. dragon riders did not die by dragon fire. They died by being killed otherwise. Yeah. By assassinations or what have you. Yeah. yeah. I bet if I had three big Rottweilers, I might be able to take over my neighborhood. <laughs> I don't want my Rottweilers yeah, I believe in it. You mauling can do people it, man. to death. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I, like, to- I really haven't. I think you totally could, man. I, I believe in you. This is Sean, like walking up to someone's door and knocking with like the three dogs in front of him. He's like, yo. Except instead of the dogs, it's his three cats. Not <laughs> 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 quite as intimidating. Get him, Cora. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> I'm being swamped by a to- grand total of 30 pounds of cats. <laughs> <laughs> Not even. Not even, yeah. <laughs> that title, Archon, which we just heard, is a Greek title. It's It comes from a similar language tradition as Monarch. Monarch is a Archon, Monarch, yeah. Hierarch as well. Uh, for example, Athens was ruled by three elected Archons at a time for a, a part of its history. Um, this was part of its democratic phase, you know, which of course only landowners voted in Athens, just like Valyria. It's kind of a, unquote, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very like, and only men could own land in Athens. So it's, well, like you said, it did get the ball rolling. We wouldn't, we have to say you need to go a lot farther than that, but it was better than, you know, prior systems where no one at all was voting or they had Kings or what have you. So they, yeah, there was like a, a, an executive, a military and a religious archon at any given time for this, this part of their history. Byzantine rulers use that title too. It lost power over time. I get the sense that it was similar in Valyria. It's kind of like what happened in in Rome with, say, Pompey the Great, where there were all these laws about what generals and consuls and the most powerful people could and couldn't do. But then when it comes time to hold them to account for breaking those laws, who who can do that? Someone said that to Pompey was quoted famously. I'm pretty sure I've quoted this on the show before. It's a really good quote. He said, don't quote laws at men with swords. (laughs) Like Mm. Really, that is a very succinct representation of the problem there. If the government isn't powerful enough to stop its most evil citizens, then those evil citizens basically are the government or at least rule a part of it. And that's, what are you going to do about it? And it's, well, I guess actually we can't do anything about it. And that's the problem. Yeah. Also makes me wonder if like it was extremely hard to get the four families to agree to a war. Like maybe you need a two thirds vote and they could never get it. Or something yeah, like that. Yeah, because like, they may have had similar divisions of power too. There might yeah. have been a military. Which is American, leader, but sure. They limited how much power that they could have because they knew how dangerous it was. And that limit that maybe kept them from overtaking within also kept them from overtaking outside mm. their territory. Yeah, like Caesar's war in Gaul was illegal. I mean, by Roman at the time. He he conquered Gaul, yeah. but it was, yeah. he, sure, he wasn't supposed to do that. It was illegal, but... Arrest Caesar. He got around it. Well, he... Good <laughs> luck with that one. Yeah. They, they kind of... Tra- Arrest Orion. Arrest Orion, Emperor Orion, with his 30,000 troops and his dragon. Yeah, just, yeah exactly. Hey, would you get down off that dragon? Yeah, but what do you have? Like, dragon cops flying around? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that idea that there, there was like an elite force. <laughs> dragon cops. Dragon the cops. DBI gets a Dragon Bureau <laughs> investigation, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the DGB. I, I, I was thinking about that. If you're a 40 family in Valyria, how do you stop one of the other dragon families from just showing up with a Balerion and burning your house down? Yeah, this is where you get into like Dune stuff where the, the emperor of Dune was trying to sneakily take out House Atreides 
because he couldn't do that openly because they had a, there's an, all the great houses have that agreement called the Landsrad where if the emperor ever comes after one of us, we all gang up on him and to stop him. So you wonder if they had an agreement sort of like that, where if any of us tries to try to make themselves the king over all of us, we all agree to stop them. Whether that was an open rule or just like a common sense agreement, you could see it going either way. And there was apparently an agreement to not allow more than 40 families, yeah. I guess, not to let any. Yeah. So maybe within the families, there's an agreement. No one can have more than three dragons or mm-hmm. no one can bring in their dragons across this strip of land or like a neutral zone your, or something. Your volcano they, or, yeah. They were not allowed to bring dragons anywhere else in the empire to live. They could fly there, but they couldn't have their own, like Volantis never had dragons. Lys never had dragons. Cohor doesn't. They were yeah. all centralized in Valeria, which is like everyone watching what the other one is doing. You can't go off and have a dragon breeding program. They have mm-hmm. to stay here so we can see what you're doing. <laughs> and these are all more reasons that might have kept them from conquering other lands, you know? Mm-hmm. True mm. that, true. Is there anything you wanted to get in, Joe, before we uh, wrap this yeah, up? Yeah, I think the last thing that I always find fascinating about the 40 families and the Targaryens is that the Targaryens were the wimps. They were <laughs> right? the least powerful of the 40 <laughs> families. They were the punks. In terms of, you think about them in terms of Westerosi court, they were like the flints or something <laughs> like that. They are so far down the rungs of the power within Lyria, in a way, it allows George to give you a feeling of what the rest of Lyria was like. The Targaryens are the worst. What were the best? Yeah, like? geez. Like, <laughs> how powerful were they? How much money did they have? How much political influence? Like, it's, how much more honorable I, might they have been or stable? It's, or, yeah, it's hard to like put a put a barometer on it, but it's just, they're the punks, the ones that people laughed at and they knocked over Westeros. They were nothing. Arguably, like the reason we were trying to worry, we were trying to wonder like, how was it that none of these families went anywhere else? Maybe they were, maybe it wasn't allowed, but maybe the reason the Targaryens were is because they were so like, little. like, yeah, let them go. Who cares? They're so weak. You know? Like, who cares? We'll get another 40 family. We'll, we'll, somebody else can make a branch family. That'll be the new one. <laughs> these idiots think like the whole that. continent's going to blow up. Bah! Those fools. <laughs> Who's laughing? Hubris. Now? Yeah, the, I think <laughs> I think the the best term for Valyria is hubris. Ooh, empire of hubris. The free hold, The free hubris. Mm-hmm. Guilty Undertaker says the Elf and Numenorean parallels are the most obvious, but is there also a parallel between the Valyrians and the Dwarves of Moria who delved too deep and released and released things like the Balrog? And I was like, hey, that's a pretty good uh, parallel there. What do you think of that? I think Guilty Undertaker is remembering the live stream I did about (laughs) uh, Doom of Illyria, where I suggested that there's a lot of parallels between the Doom of Illyria and the Balrogs found deep in Moria. That the idea of delving too deep, that looking for secrets too far beneath ground is definitely a thing from Tolkien. I think there's... uh, George rarely does a one-for-one. So like when he draws a comparison, he always mixes it up and does it in his own way. So the idea that like the Valyrians are elves, but they're also kind of like Sauron and Morgoth, but they're also a little bit like the dwarves too. Mm-hmm. He makes his own version of them. So I think that's a, a great point and very much true that it seems like I do remember within Lord of the Rings that the dwarves and the elves both had extreme fascination with gems and wealth, mm. like particular magical light gems. There was a coexistence between them where the dwarves would make a lot of stuff and then the elves would buy it from them. Or there's like wars where they stole it from each other, that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. So it's, there's definitely overlap there. And I think that's a good call from Guilty Undertaker. Right on. Excellent, insightful question from Kartik Prabhu here says, was there a dragon air traffic controller? 
Especially hmm. <laughs> <laughs> at collisions in the air. It makes sense there would be. I bet they had lanes of traffic. You they had to have some sort of yeah, something to, it's to not manage a crazy it. Idea. It's you know, I feel like some of it would have been the dragons have a sense of each other, yeah, like some just magic there. Ram each other. They're not like planes that have brains. They have brains, exactly. So I think that maybe would Let me ask- do it enough, but. Do we have an estimation or maybe even knowledge of how many dragons there might have been at any point? Is, is it the Rangelex a, a few hundred or could it have been 2,000 or no? It was never more than 100. Supposedly or? when Valyria really, really wanted to take out the Roinar, they sent 300. But that's the largest number yeah. we ever hear of. That's so how many it, they it sent. might be exaggerated. So probably mm. not every single dragon that they owned either. Yeah. Like they probably had another hundred that were hatchlings. And yeah, we're, we're definitely talking hundreds, but I, I would guess it wasn't a thousand, but that... I'm also guessing they all weren't Valerian size yeah. because Valeria is not a huge place, but that's a lot of dragons for a small location. So you're probably talking about yeah. more dragon pits, like that kind of thing, where they probably didn't get that huge. Yeah, you know? a lot of them may have... Valerian's an outlier. Yeah, a lot of them may have even lived... Maybe they, some of them lived outside of the city. I don't know. It's really hard to figure, but like they, they would have had some fancy structures. Maybe they had some... They wouldn't have had dragon pits, I don't think. But maybe they had some. They, they wouldn't shift. Maybe you had ten dragons, but you had room for five dragons. Yeah. There was always five in the air. At any it was like point. helipads. Like yeah, yeah. it's like parking in Manhattan. Like <laughs> there's dragon keepers on uh, Dragonstone, so that's probably a tradition oh, they brought with them. Yeah, like professional true. dragon te- caretakers. Yeah, you're right. You can imagine Hello. that. That for fun, they basically might have taken them out for walks into Essos and let them eat a bunch of shit. <laughs> Big old Valyrian steel leashes. Uh, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna go to the Lazarine. We're gonna get a bunch of sheep. Let's let's go. I'll take the I'll take the dragons. That's with what, me. That's get what the Janara leashes. Belaris was doing with her dragon when she went to Sothorio. She just was looking for some tasty snacks for her dragon. <laughs> some exotic <laughs> treats. <laughs> dude, I think Sean's right. It's it's a lot. It's even a hundred few hundred dragons is a lot. Like at the height of the Dance of the Dragons, they had what, 40? Not even. At the height of the Dance of the Dragons, there was, not counting maybe some of the hatchlings, there was like 19. Yeah, and even then, they totally dominated every part of a gigantic war. So hundreds in one place. This sounds chaotic. But it also goes to show how much food they'd have to eat. right? And how much poop, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But no, this actually goes to what we were saying before about, Sean, you brought up, maybe they just were really wary about putting their dragons into battle. It's the threat of the dragon is perhaps more valuable than actually putting it into action a lot of times. And we saw, as you said, Joe, when they went to battle, the the dragon, they did vast destruction, but they mostly, they mostly killed each other. As well, when dragon fought dragon, the end result was usually one dragon dead, at least, and possibly both, like the other one permanently injured, uh, if not both dead, like in the case of Caraxes and, and Vagar, right? Like that. Ish. Yeah. So mm, I've drawn the parallel to dragons and nuclear weapons a bunch of times too. If two nuclear sure. powers go to war, no one really wins. Yeah. So yeah. they just, it's the threat. Don't you, once you expend that resource, you no longer have that threat, which is really where the value is for them. So yeah, so they would be very wary about fighting each other in crossing that line, right? Well, you know, there's also the rules and the strategy of Savas. Like, it's either Tyrion or Brown Ben Plum that says, basically, you have to wait to send your dragons mm. out like when they're playing. Yeah. And I imagine that's probably true of Valyrian warfare, where you use everything else before the dragons. Yeah. And that's, I, I imagine that's probably an accurate description of what their battles were like. They, they sent out everybody else first. And if things got really serious, 
then the dragons were deployed, which is basically what we see in the Roynar Wars. In the Field of Fire, too, right? Like, he even even with Aegon yeah. being vastly outnumbered, he still just started off with just troops versus troops and then waited to see what happened. And then, as we hear, it's the only time in the entire conquest where all three dragons were deployed at the same time. So, that yeah, that tells you a lot, too. I wonder if there's an amount of arrogance there, because it's if I feel like you at least in one strafing fire, you know, <laughs> one sortie of dragons, and okay, now we'll send everyone else. Yeah. Just burn up the front which line Danny did on the TV else. show, which made a lot of sense. She opened a gap in their lines yeah. that they're not going to run through, and that was yeah. that was very like believable as a strategy. Divide their line with flame and create a hole, which is, you hear that all the time. Like, that's what they're trying to do. You're trying to create a gap for the cavalry to rush through. And then he's like, well, hey, <laughs> this will be easier than usual. You got a good way to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it'll be easier than usual. <laughs> we don't need horses or lances. I got this covered, y'all. Let's answer the trivia question and then uh, work our way out here. The question again was, what event did Hand of the King Thaddeus Rowan confess to that he clearly couldn't have Done. The answer is the doom of Valyria. <laughs> what? <Yes. laughs> he confessed. Mushroom is like, yeah, he was so out of his way because he had been tortured so badly that he was just like, his mind was frail. So, yeah, they got him. To, Mushroom made him conv- admit to the doom of Valyria. And he's Mushroom's regretted that later. It's a pretty cruel thing to do, but, <laughs> but, but damn, yeah. <laughs> it is a problem with torture. People just admit to whatever you want. Yeah, that's true. Blue Bard just said whatever. Yep. Seriously, whether it's the Blue Bard or Hand of the King Thaddeus Rowan. Yep, yep. It is torture is unreliable. Joe Magician, tell me or tell everyone what you have coming up. If you have plans besides, I know you're 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 doing more Dying of the Light, which is George's first full (laughs) novel. Uh, I was a guest for one of those. Such a good novel. So if you if you have read it, definitely check out Joe's work on that. If you haven't, well, do that and then check it out. So yeah, the Dying of the Light read-throughs on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Joe Magician. At the $5 level, you get access to it on chapter 13, I think out of 15 or 16 or something like that. It's a really short book. I did uh, I'm basically at the end three of three and four, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that had all the history yeah. in the lore. <laughs> Which, of course, those are early. Yeah. <laughs> he dropped a lot of knowledge in that it stuff. Also, on my uh, YouTube channel, I've got part... We're going to do part two of the live stream about House Blackwood. Going to be focusing... I'm going to try and do like half of it on House of the Dragon because they come into their own a lot during that That's time. True. You get... um. You get Ben Jacot, you get Cregan Mary's Black Alice. Black Alley, yeah. That's right. Black Alley, Blackwood. Yeah. Yeah. Black Alley, I'm sorry. And you know, the, the Blackwoods actually have a pretty tremendous part of that war. Red Rob Rivers uh, is from as, there, is a bastard of, of House Blackwood, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- there's a lot to talk about there. We're going to be doing that. Videos on the horizon that I'm working on. I'm actually going to do one in the future. I was like, I can do Amanda in the chat. I do have volcanoes and a song of ice and fire like video I want to do at some Oh, point. cool. Because it's so, it's so. It's well done and all over the place in A Song of Ice and Fire in a way that kind of explains a lot of his magical weirdness with just him focusing on seismic activity, earthquakes, <laughs> volcanoes. <laughs> He has a passion for him. Oh, my God. So, we yeah. didn't even talk about Hard Home, for example. That yeah. would be one that would come up. Yeah. We, yeah, we were thinking of talking about some of the actual eruptions when we get to the Doom. But, yeah, it sounds like there'll be some great stuff on in your channel along those lines as well. So, people, keep an eye out for that. Make sure you're subscribed to Joe Magician. And you can see the cat. YouTube.com slash Joe Magician. We got Cora two weeks in a row, eh? Uh, oh, oh not happy. Yeah, she's, not, she's not quite as uh, subdued as she was last week. Last she's got time, kitten she was, stuff to do. You know? Yeah, she's got kitten stuff to do. But we got her. <laughs> Everyone can be happy. You saw a kitten. Slowly becoming a cat, not a yeah. kitten. 
We, we also mentioned our episodes on The Great Empire of the Dawn and Ashai, and I'd like to remind you all that next week we have Jamie Redfern of The History Of. He will be our guest discussing more on Valyria, but also the expansion of Valyria. We'll have some real-world parallels from real from Rome and Carthage, of which he's extremely uh, well-versed on. He's done a lot of podcasting on that. So you'll want to be here for that. I would if we go as long next week as we did this week I will immediately go to the uh, Here Be Dragons yeah <laughs> right on yeah don't forget that everybody next week Sean is on Here Be Dragons this week they are covering what we do in the shadows season two yeah we love that show oh, awesome fantastic TV show also the movie is really good yeah and there's another spinoff Wellington Paranormal that's really yeah, good as well it's a, it's a great franchise Thanks to anyone who's sent a question. Thanks to any uh, in advance on Discord or on Patreon or on Facebook or anywhere else. Thanks to anyone who came live. If you joined us today or if you're a regular who joins us at the live streams, we really appreciate that. It adds a lot to the discussion. It makes it more of a community experience. And a lot of the good questions y'all post make it into the episode. Um, and thanks to anyone who takes my survey. Yes. Bit.ly slash AR lens. R lens. You can take that. It'll take you under 10 minutes, and yes. I'll appreciate it. Thanks. Please do. Yes, yeah, so Shay, I could really use that uh, Use that data. Everyone counts. Everyone helps. Yes. As well, a thanks to our musicians. That would be Joey and Jesse and Kevin McLeod. As well, thanks to the Benjineer. I have some great news regarding the Benjineer. We, he has completed the Tyrion 2 audio play we will be it's already posted to our patreon not for not for money you can just go to patreon and listen to it it's free yeah it's uh, all you free. can't monetize <laughs> george's yeah. chapters uh, <laughs> like that clear. yeah that's a, that's a tough yeah. one that's a good way to, to get lost we've shared them on our we've shared a previous one on our on our podcast feed but it is non-monetized no advertisements yeah. on it just uh but Community that way it's easier for you to listen to and you guys will really enjoy it. It's got a lot of sound effects in it, dragon sounds, horns. Yeah, that's it's really good. You, you ask for the link if you can't find it on your own, and we'll eventually post it to the podcast feed, most likely some week when we don't have an episode. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you all next time. Thanks uh, again for everyone coming. Thanks to our excellent guests. You had so many great takes today, Joe Magician. Look forward to hanging out again in the future. And uh, we'll see you all next week for more Valar Rerius. <laughs>